My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Now, some of you guys may know that I've been working on a new book. The provisional title is Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. Struggling with this book is why it's been a number of months since my last podcast interview. And so I thought it could be useful to me and interesting to you if I were to have a conversation with a few story experts and ask them some pointed questions such as, why story? What is story? And perhaps most importantly, how does story relate to technology, artificial intelligence, being human, and the future? Today is the first interview of this series, and my guest is Lisa Cron. Among other things, Lisa is the author of Story or Die and Wired for Story, which is also the title of her fantastic TEDx talk, which I will include alongside this interview. Lisa spent a decade in publishing and has been a literary agent, television producer, a story analyst, teacher and coach for many years. So without further ado, welcome to Singularity FM, Lisa. Uh, thank you so much. It is a real pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Believe me, the pleasure is mine. I'm a big fan of your book. I uh, listened to the audio book from beginning to end. And as soon as I finished, I went ahead and I purchased the book on Kindle. And 9% of the book on Kindle afterwards ended up as highlights. So the Kindle app didn't even let me export it because I was trying to circumvent or break their IP rules and stuff. <laughs> Not so, that's Great. how much I love your work. So, Lisa, let's start perhaps with this. I know you love writers and storytellers, and they're your typical audience. And perhaps close after that is perhaps business people. Now, today, you have a very different type of an audience. My audience is predominantly techno geeks, mind you, very highly technologically sophisticated and educated people who uh, have multiple advanced degrees in science and engineering. So for example, over 90% of my audience has a university degree, over 60% has at least a master's or some other advanced degree. And I think, I forget if it was over 33% or something like that has a PhD. So this is the people you're speaking to. Now tell us, why do you think any of us techno geeks should even care about story? Well, I think it's because we literally think in story. We make sense of everything in the world in story, whether we're aware of it or not. And I also think because the whole cornerstone of Western civilization, what it's built on, which is, if you go back, what, a couple thousand years and you get to Plato, who talks about the difference between logic and emotion, and logic, again, logic, data, facts, objective reality being the way that we're supposed to make sense of things, the way that the world works, and emotion being something that is really, we should watch out for, that's sort of the goal of emotion. It's almost as if it's binary, right? Logic and data is what's gonna 
keep us going. It's what's going to tell us what's right. It's how we're going to live a good life. And emotion, well, its goal is to subvert logic, right? It doesn't have any goal other than subverting logic. I sort of think of it these days as we think of it as kind of like mold, right? I mean, it's like mold isn't, there isn't like beef mold or, or uh, uh, whatever else, broccoli mold in the refrigerator. It's just mold. The goal is just to kind of destroy the goodness of, you know, whatever it is, destroy logic. And that turns out to be 100% wrong. It turns out to be biologically wrong. It turns out to be soft science. It's not logic versus emotion. It's both. And an emotion is always the decider. We make sense of everything based on how we feel about it. I mean, we've all been told for a very long time that, you know, what makes us the master of our own ship is that we think analytically, but we don't make decisions based on our an analytical analysis of the situation we make decisions based on how that analysis makes us feel. And that, that is the, the purview of story because story isn't about the external world or logic or data. Story is about how that data affects us in our lives, how we feel about it, in other words, because that's what emotion actually does. Emotion telegraphs meaning. We make decisions based on everything, again, based on how we feel about something, which isn't something that's arbitrary. It's not emotional, which is a word we totally like to get rid of, because it sounds like what it means is, is that we feel anything. If we show any emotion, well, that's the opposite of logic, and therefore we're making a bad decision. And the truth is, that's how we make every single decision, whether we're aware of it or not. There's not a, a moment in the day where we're not feeling emotion. In fact, there's nothing that happens or that we think about or that we see that doesn't really bring on a course of emotion, which is a biological reaction that your brilliant brain and nervous system then translates into meaning and tells you how you feel about it and therefore what you should do. And to come back to your question, that's what stories are about. Stories aren't about what happens out there on the surface, whether you're writing a novel or whether you're trying to figure out what to do, whether you're writing nonfiction, whether you're writing you know, a, a mission statement. It's not about what's external. It's about what, what's internal. Stories about an internal journey. Stories about how what happens externally forces us to examine why we do what we do, what we're doing, and then hopefully have that aha moment that allows us to see how the way that we've seen the world is wrong and lets us therefore shift our something in our belief system that lets us solve whatever that external problem is. And again, that's, that's literally how we make sense of everything. That's funny you say this because when I was interviewing Dr. Michio Kaku, um, he was telling me that science is about the gap between the appearance of things and the essence of things. And now you're kind of putting in story right in that gap too, which is, which is very interesting. And, and I, I, I love that beginning. So, so let's see from a scientific point of view, you know, we scientists and uh, business people always like to start with a definition. So, so tell us what is story? How do we define story? I think what story is about is story is about how an unavoidable situation, an unavoidable problem forces us to reconsider something internal, something in our belief system that's been keeping us from being able to solve the problem. 
And only by confronting whatever that, what I like to call a misbelief, whatever that misbelief is that we have learned about life that we think is going to help us solve the problem. And when it doesn't, we have to reconsider. And then something in our belief system shifts. And with that shift, we're able to either solve the problem or look at it very differently and realize maybe it wasn't the problem that we thought it was. And that's what story is about. Story is literally about how we learn to navigate the, you know, the, the world that we live in. Because, I mean, I think the really interesting thing in kind of coming to the, the science of it, which is the way that we make sense of things, we tend to think that there's some sort of like logical objective world out there, right? And we all sort of see the same objective world. And so we all react to things in the exact same way, you know, except for people who are really, really screwed up and we hope they get a lot of therapy and they join us over here in real reality real soon. But the truth is the way that we make sense of everything comes from one place and one place only. And that's what our past experience has taught us those things mean. So that the way that we retain past experience is because from the time we're very small, what we come in and we've got what, what's known is as uh, an avidity for patternicity, which is why like you never want to use $25 words because like, what does that even mean? It means that from the time we're born, we're looking for if then you know, combinations. If it I, means we see a face on the moon or Jesus on a toast and, <laughs> and all those things, right? Well, kind of, no, but actually what it means is, I mean, yeah, that's a pattern for sure, but it means that from when we're born, it's like, oh, if I cry real loud, that nice person's going to come in and give me milk. Got it. And once we see a pattern and we can you know, rely on it, it gets relegated to what's known as our cognitive unconscious. And then that becomes the lens through which we read meaning into everything. And the way that, our, our, that, we're, that we're wired biologically is when something grabs our attention, it's when a pattern's broken, right? Pattern broken. And we go, whoa, I thought this one thing was gonna happen and something else happens instead. And that pulls us online. Your limbic system starts to come, you know, your, your, I'm sorry, your amygdala starts to come online. Your limbic system comes online and you feel something and that, that biological reaction is what gives whatever that event is uh, evergreen backstage pass to your long-term memory because you're going to use it to try to figure out what to do next. As, as neuroscientist Dean Buonamano, he wrote a book called Your Brain is a Time Machine. And basically, you know, what it comes down to is, is that the sole reason for your brain for memory is to record past events in order to predict the future. In other words, we are a prediction machine. And that's what stories are about. They're about what happens when that prediction doesn't work. And now what do we do? And now we've got to go back into the past and reevaluate that belief that we had that we didn't even usually see as a belief. We just see it as that's the way the world is. But we've got to reevaluate it in order to solve whatever problem you know the story has has pitched at us. That's why story really is the world's first virtual reality, you know, minus that geeky visor. Wow. And we'll get to that, to that idea that story is a virtual reality. But, but before that, uh, let's take it step by step. And perhaps you can tell us about why you say in one of your previous books that we are wired for story. Tell us the sort of biological or the neuroscientific or the electrochemical science behind that claim? Because that's, that's a big claim. Okay, first, just to say, 
We are wired for story. It's literally built into the architecture of our brain. We're wired to look at everything based on one metric and one metric only, which is how is this going to affect me given my life, given my agenda? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? And what pulls us into a story, if you want to know biologically what pulls us into a story, there's, there's a chemical reaction, three chemicals that get unleashed in unison. So I have to say it, you know, obviously in linear form, but this happens in unison. I mean, the first thing that grabs us in the story is dopamine. And people talk about dopamine as the pleasure hormone, but it, but it isn't actually pleasure. Dopamine is curiosity because we're curious to see where it's going to go because we might feel pleasure. It's like they say, and this is something, talk about addiction, something we are all addicted to these days, like our cell phones, right? And you know how it is. You hear that little ding and they'll go, you get the hit of dopamine. Well, it's not pleasure per se, it's curiosity because you know you, you just might've like won that lottery that you don't even remember entering. So the first thing is dopamine and what gets us is surprise. We think this one thing's gonna happen and something else happens instead. And that instantly pulls our attention. The next thing that a story will pull us in with is cortisol because the next thing is suspense. What's going to happen? We know that there's something at stake. We know there's a problem that can't be avoided and something, something bad could happen. So that we're, we're like, what is that going to be? But those two things aren't enough. The third thing, and this I think is the, the most important on one level. And it's also the one that, especially in the business world, makes people the most uncomfortable. And that is oxytocin, which is the empathy hormone. And the only way you get that, the story element of it, is vulnerability. The person whose story it is, right, who's now walked into, they've got the dopamine, uh-oh, something's happening. I thought this one thing was going to happen and something else has happened instead. Now I'm curious. There's the suspense. It might not work out right. There's a problem. It might not be solved. And then there's vulnerability. Uh-oh, what do I do? How do I solve this problem? Am I going to get clobbered? Am I going to get what I need? Is this going to pull me? And that's vulnerability. And that makes us empathize. And empathy is really the key thing because then we can feel what that person feels. And that's why when we sort of started this and I said, you know, stories the world's first virtual reality, that's what pulls us in. Because once we empathize, it's not just that we're feeling what that person's feeling, but we're feeling the why of it too. We are literally experiencing it. And, and you know, they've done the studies that say when you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you were doing what the protagonist is doing or main character, or if you're telling someone else a story, I mean, you really are, I mean, literally on their wavelength. It, it sounds like a metaphor. We always thought of it oh, on the same wavelength. It, it sounds metaphorical, but it's not. It turns out to be literal. It turns out to be biological. Your brain waves and their brain waves synchronize. And so that pulls us in. So the, what you're saying here is that basically just like fighter jet pilots, train in virtual uh, jet simulators, for example, to, to, to learn how to, to do combat training or specific maneuvers, etc., uh, etc., et story serves the same function to us, normal people, about situations that we haven't or maybe even are not very likely to confront in life, and yet it allows us to kind of experience it virtually through the avatar of the protagonist and then kind of get the benefit 
of such a training, just like a fighter pilot uh, gets the benefit from training in the simulator, we get the benefit of experiencing this story virtually through the lives of our protagonists and hopefully learning something out of that experience and taking away out of that virtual reality into our real lives. Absolutely. That is absolutely what happens. I mean, evolutionary biologists and, and biologists and neuroscientists now have said story has to serve some actual like, you know, evolutionary purpose or else why would we have it? Because literally, and I'm sure, I mean, just talking about stories now when we think about, you know, novels or movies or TV, you really are pulled out of your reality and you are into the reality of the story. I mean, I know just, just talking about it on that level, you've probably all to some degree had that experience where you're reading a novel and you think, okay, one more page, then okay, one more chapter. And then suddenly you're thinking, you know, who, who parked a Mack truck out of my, you know, outside my window because the bright lights are coming through the curtains. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, I stayed up all night. And, <laughs> and at that point, you know, you're going to be exhausted for the rest of the day, but you have really been in that other world. So that if it didn't serve a purpose, I mean, we would have all been clobbered and that would have been it. But the purpose it serves is exactly as you said, it allows us to go through experiences we haven't had yet to figure out, well, what would that really feel like? Because that is such the key thing. It's not about, well, what would I do? Let me take notes about like how to climb a mountain or what kind of exercise I need to do to you know, climb Mount Everest. But it's what would it feel like? What would it really mean to me? I mean, story is never about what to do or what happens. Story is always about why. Why is that person doing it? What does it really mean to them? And almost always in a story, as in life, right? What it looks like on the surface is massively different than what it really is. I mean, it's like it's like that, let's just call it a lie that they taught most of us to tell from when we're very small. And I bet you guys have all heard this expression, which is never let them see sweat, right? We've all heard that expression. Like, what is it imply? You know, that, that we're sweating buckets, but we want to make it seem like that was a piece of cake. It was a cakewalk. It was totally easy to do it. I didn't break a sweat. Stories are about sweating. They're about what it really costs us. As I'm fond of saying, I once had a student at UCLA who said, she said, I know on the surface, I look really put together. And she really did. She said, I know on the surface, I look put together, but inside I'm a raging mess. <laughs> all of you from seeing it and that's the point it's that raging mess it's the vulnerability that we hold in that is stories life's blood it's what is it really costing as i as i as i probably say to, to writers at least once a day there must be blood meaning what does it cost you think of story as an emotional cost-benefit analysis of taking a particular course of action. If it doesn't cost you something to do it, and I, I don't mean money, obviously. If it doesn't cost you something, there's no real meaning in it. Stories about the cost of, I want this one thing, but I've got to do this other thing, or I want to do this one thing, but I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you know, if I do it, if I let people know, if I show them what I really think, you know, they're going to, they might laugh at me or, or clobber me for that matter, or fire me. Stories about about that internal struggle that we all have. Because getting over it is what allows us to break out of the place that most of us are, are trapped in, which has the, the title, I think, is a misnomer, which is our comfort zone. 
because, you know, most people's comfort zone is a straitjacket. I mean, let's face it, you know, comfort zone really means what's familiar. And we tend to be wired to want to stick with the familiar because, you know, it's worked so far. So why rock the boat? Even if you don't like it, it's, I think it's why we stick with the devil we know, you know, I mean, they might be awful, but we know how to survive. So why take the chance? And isn't that inner conflict that you're talking about a sign of consciousness? In other words, what's the connection between story and consciousness then? Well, I mean, I think story is always about this versus that. And consciousness is asking that question. It's not just coming in and just being, for lack of a better way of saying it, like, 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 like a video camera. You're just looking and you're not reacting to anything. The minute you have to react to anything, the minute you have to make any decision, you're making a choice. You're doing a this versus that. What's going to keep me safe? What's going to help me get closer to my agenda? And consciousness is exactly that, trying to figure out how to survive. Because the truth is, everything that we come to, we come to purposefully. Is this going to help me or is this going to hurt me? And I don't just mean it in a you know, in an egocentric or a self-centered sort of way. But I mean, help me or hurt me in terms of, of how I see myself. I want to see myself as a good person. I want to help other people. I want to feel like I'm out there doing something that has purpose, that matters, that where it'll feel like I matter as well. I mean, it's like, I don't believe in when people talk about altruism and I don't believe in it as, as altruism, like you're doing something and you get nothing in return. I kind of think of it, and I don't really like this word, but I'll say it anyway, like selfish altruism, meaning even when you do something where you've given up everything that matters to you in your life, you know, or creature comforts or whatever, you're doing it because it gives you something. And what does it give you? It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel like you're doing something that matters and it's purposeful. Sometimes, you know, I mean, that's why people... I don't like saying it this way because I'm not a big proponent of war, but that's why people often often go and fight or fight battles or or join the Peace Corps or, you know, give things up in order to really make a difference for other people when they could sit at home and be you know, comfortable and get a whole bunch of stuff. Instead, they're going to do something that matters and they do it as much for how they're going to feel about themselves as they do it for the people who they're helping. Because at the end of the day, the only barometer we really have for right or wrong is us, right? It's what we believe. That's, again, which brings us back to story, right? It's always about with everything we think about or do. How is it going to affect me given my agenda? Is it going to help me? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to keep me safe or isn't it? That's the question that we ask. That That's fantastic. And just to, I was looking for a, for a, a uh, quote from Will Storr here that was right on topic about consciousness and uh, maybe I'll find it a little bit later. But uh, in the meantime, just to kind of sum up what you just said uh, and go back to the definition of the story so, of story so that we can move on from there. And I'm not sure if I took this quote from you from another interview that you did or from one of your books, but basically you say, quote, a story is about how what happens, that is the plot, affects someone, that is the protagonist, in pursuit of deceptively difficult difficult goal, the story problem, and about how that person changes internally in order to solve the problem. And that's what the story is about. Okay, so now 
tell mm-hmm. me where does the power of the story come then from uh, other than those places that you just said is there anything else and are there exceptions perhaps because i i kind of watched this kind of very weird movie last night or the night before last night actually called the french dispatch i don't know if you've seen it it's yeah, a in wes that. anderson movie it's not a typical movie it doesn't have a typical story if you ask me it can't even tell i can't even tell you really what the movie is all about Uh, but what I can tell you is that I felt greatly cheered uh, after watching it. It was very extremely strange. It was very quirky, very witty, uh, kind of nonsensical and refreshing at the same time. Uh, in a way, I felt like after reading a Zen book, uh, if you ask me what it's about, it's hard for me to tell you to put it into words, but I feel greatly cheered after reading a Zen book or meditating on, on a Zen cone. Uh, <laughs> so I could talk to you about it. Yeah, I have not seen it, so so I can't make any comment one way or another. Um, I mean, it's also what we bring to it, what we expect, the way what's in the story connects up to our own um, uh, you know, past history and what resonates with us. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, it's the character literally has gone through something really similar to what we have. I mean, almost always there's that on one layer or another, whether it's something similar because it's a contemporary character, you know, who lives in a, for instance, I really loved the book. Um, I did not see the movie, but I loved the book, The Goldfinch for so many reasons. And one of them was I lived in New York City I had a son about the same age as, as Theo was, you know, I went to all the restaurants that she went to. I could, I could picture everything. And so I was so pulled into that world. I think I would have loved it anyway, but, but I brought that to it. But what pulls us into any story also, whether it's something that is contemporary or something that is, you know, historical or something that is completely, you know, uh, whether you're talking about dystopian sci-fi still comes back to human psychology and human emotion, meaning again, the meaning that we read into things, which comes to the why we believe what we believe. Because often I think as we see in our world right now, I mean, it used to be that at least at least we could agree on what facts were. And that seems to be gone as well. But often you can see that what hues people to what they believe has very little to do with anything other than being belonging to a group and wanting to have that sense of 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 belonging and being seen as valuable within, and I, I don't like using this word, but I will, within a particular tribe. And often that's where things come from in terms of, you know, in terms of our belief systems. But I wish I'd seen that movie so I could I could talk about it. I, well, I don't I can highly recommend it. It's got a okay. ton of a, like a like so many, like an endless list of list of phenomenal actors like Bill Murray, Benicio del Toro. Shia Ledoux or what's her name? Um, there, there's so many amazing actors there. The really uh, interesting thing, though, I think about movies as opposed to anything that's written, or well, yeah, as opposed to anything that's written, is that written prose take us into an area that no other form of storytelling can take us into, which is what we come to story for, which is what somebody's thinking and what they're feeling and the sense that they're actually making. I mean, you can't do that in a movie because you'd have endless voiceover and you'd be totally bored and you'd go, what's wrong with these people? But the things that that movies can give us 
and television, obviously, and, and plays, but more move, television and movies because we can see them you know, so, so closely, we can see a face, is, is, is body language and tonality. And so much of it comes from that. I mean, I'm always saying to writers, uh, you know, that body language in prose is so deeply overrated because body language speaks body to body. And it's so intense. And part of it is because, you know, we've got the mirror neuron. So we are literally mirroring what we're seeing and we're feeling what, what you know, we're feeling what they're feeling. And of course, tonality, you know, tone of voice just says so much and affects us so much. I mean, it's funny. I am um, at one point, I had a boyfriend a long time ago who on his outgoing message, right? So if you called him and he wasn't there, you would get this message. But I guess the day that he recorded it, he was really pissed off and he sounded really angry and annoyed. And every time I called and got that, that message, I would instantly think, oh my God, he's mad at me. And then I'd go, <laughs> but here's the weird thing and the way our brains go. But even so, and even though I knew it and I braced myself for it every time, he's not going to get a message. I would still find myself afterwards trying to think about why he was mad at me and all the things he could have been mad at me for, because it really does trigger something in us. And my guess is, you know, in the movie that you're talking about, there was probably a lot of that too, which does go into a layer that that we that, supply the gaps. We fill in the gaps, either yeah. consciously or unconsciously. Just like the story that you're talking about, New York City, and yeah. your imagining of of the surroundings and your son and this and that, you're supplying all the missing information to make the story work for you even better. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody fills something in. But here's the thing in story that I really believe, and this is what, I mean, I spent all day talking to writers and, um, and business people, but mostly writers about this, is that, is that when people talk about the narrative through line in the story, they tend to think it's about the plot. I mean, this kind of even comes back to the first thing we were talking about, which is people who are very, I mean, when you were talking about, you know, techies and people who are into IT or data and data driven, is that it's not about the data. It's not about the external part of it. It's about how that then affects some body. And without that, without that narrative through line is actually the evolving internal narrative that the protagonist or the person who the story is about is using to make sense of what's happening out there. And just knowing data doesn't do much good if you can't put it into context so that we know how it's going to affect when if you're in the business world or you're trying to communicate something to someone else in a, in a more business or even an academic setting, if you can't show them how that data is going to affect them boots on the ground in their lives in a way that matters, they're not going to care. It's going to just go right over their head or they're going to misread what you're saying. And if, if, if it can't, if there is no effect it's going to have on them, if there is no reason for them to go, oh, wait a minute, even if we try to pay attention, it tends to go over our head because the thinking part of our brain that's there to make sense of things is there to catch things, again, that break a pattern. That's, oh, I need to pay attention to that or else. And then, you know, like, what is that or else going to be? Yeah. And you actually talk a lot about that in your book. So let me just give two quotes. One where you say that a fact learned in a story is 22 times more memorable than a bare fact on its own. 22 times. That's a big difference. And, and second, and that's a longer quote, you say, quote, 
you have to change how people feel about something before you can make them change what they think about it. The only way of convincing anyone of anything is hardwired into our brains and there is no way of overriding it. It's story. So in other words, we can, and we have been talking about climate change and what have you, and the facts, scientific facts that we have had for, turns out, well over a hundred years. And yet, most people who have been in denial are still in denial and no amount of facts seem to make any difference whatsoever. Actually, uh, I myself got sort of turned on to the power and the importance of story maybe about four years ago or so when I started doing the, the original research on my book, when I started noticing that no matter how much I study something scientifically and how strongly logical uh, arguments I put forward, quoting, you know, very well-backed scientific art, uh, evidence, research, facts, etc., it made zero difference on certain people, like zero. And in many cases, it was even worse than zero. It was like minus. They fought back uh, equally, if not more so than before. <laughs> Boomerang effect often, if you give someone a reason that goes against what they already believe that they've never heard of before, they will come up with a brand new counter argument as to why you're wrong. But again, it's not necessarily because they believe what they believe, but it's because it hews them to their tribe. It's because they want that sense of belonging. I mean, that is the other thing that people often go, you know, I'm a lone wolf. I've done everything by myself and I don't need, and it's like, I always want to say, well, you, you do know that wolves travel in packs, right? And a, a lone wolf in the wolf community is a wolf that's done something so egregious to the pack that it's been ostracized and left to die. I mean, we are really hardwired. And again, this comes, once again, because I haven't said it yet, but when our brain had that last big growth spurt about 100,000 years ago, which was when we got the ability to think rationally, and that's what we've been taught, right, that it was. So we had that growth spurt, now we could think logically and rationally, and that's what allowed us to leap the food chain we were in about the middle of the food chain at that time and it left us to the to the front but what evolutionary biologists and neuroscientists will tell you now is that wasn't the reason for that growth spurt it was because at that point the need to belong to a group became as biologically hardwired as is our need for food air and water and i think we've forgotten about that and i think that's the need to really feel like we're part of something that then can bring us into and sadly allow us to get radicalized in ways that, that in the past, and that brings us to technology and, you know, and, uh, and social media and, and, you know, and the way in which, the way in which a single voice that should be one-on-one -on -one now can be heard by, you know, 35 million people like that is, is terrifying. As I'm fond of saying, we're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. We're wired to live in a world where, like I was saying with that old boyfriend, he sounded angry and it made me feel like, oh my God, what did I do? And he wasn't talking to me. <laughs> He's talking to anybody. But when you hear the voice, I, like I said, every time I go to call, I think I would gear up for, oh God, if he's not there, I'm going to hear that voice because it's biological because it does something to us. And, and we're, again, we're wired to live one-on-one. -on -one. We're wired to live in a world, you know, Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar, the evolutionary biologist out of Oxford, you know, it's 150. We're wired to live in a group of 150 forever, right? From birth until death, not, not like now 150 self-selecting, 
But that was it. And we're also wired to live in a world that doesn't change. I mean, 100,000 years, if you were born 100,000 years ago and you were born 50,000 years ago, you're in the same world. <laughs> so it made sense that when our brains evolved, once we learned something, it could become encoded as permanent because it was, that was a smart way of being. Now things change so much and that's what story does in that virtual reality. It will give us experience. It will challenge the experience that we had. So we don't have to go out and learn everything by doing because we probably all get burnt to a crisp at one point or another if we make all the mistakes that we allow ourselves to go through by reading stories of people who you know, make mistakes. Again, especially because mistakes are something that we're terrified to make in real life. We've been taught from the time we're very small that to make a mistake is mortifying. I mean, it's so ironic because then they go, you learn by trial and error, but don't make a mistake. <laughs> like, okay, how do you reconcile those two? But I actually found, and by the way, speaking of, of the biology, that also reminds me of a quote where you say somewhere in your book that that is why that biology that you just described and that kind of evolution of our brains simultaneously to the evolution of story uh, and the sort of kind of the interconnection between the evolution of story and the evolution of our brains is the reason why stories are so vitally important and feel so good to us as other biologically crucial functions for survival, such as, for example, food and sex and so on. Stories right? feel because, good. The same reason food tastes good and sex feels good, because without them, we couldn't survive. I mean, yeah. that is exactly right. And the big problem that we have, and this is what I fight against so much, is that it's so easy, especially in the technical world that you're talking about, you know, the world of scientists and especially you know, technology, it's really easy to think of story as, you know, at best soft science, because we think of story as entertainment, you know, because they feel so good. And so it's so easy to think that, yeah, stories, entertainment, it's great, but that, that makes it optional, right? It's like, sure, our lives would be far duller if we didn't have stories, but it's not like stories serve some actual purpose. And again, that couldn't be less true. Story was more crucial to our evolution than I thought I'm fond of saying that our much touted and, and deeply beloved opposable thumbs because all, all our opposable thumbs do is let us hang on. It's a story that tells us what to hang on to. It's a story that lets us go through those situations and figure out, well, what should we do and how should we work together and how can we solve this problem as a group? And again, that's why story and that need to belong came at about the same time because it was that ability both to look into the future open-ended and try to figure out how to solve problems and then be able to solve them as a group. Because one person, one lone wolf could not do it. It's all of us together that do it. And that's, that's again, that's biology. And at the same time, we had the cognitive revolution, of course, exactly at that period. And, you know, in AI, and we'll talk a little bit, a bit, uh, a little bit later about that, but consciousness in, is crucially important for some, not for others. Some are in denial of its necessity. Others say it's crucial for the creation of artificial intelligence. And that's why I wanted to, to be a little bit before uh, this moment, I wanted to bring in the, the, the sort of the connection between story and consciousness. And I actually found that quote from Will Storr that I was looking for so yeah. long. And Will Storr has this fantastic book called The Science of Storytelling. And in it, he says in one place, locked inside the black vault of our skulls, Stuck forever in the solitude of our own hallucinated universe, 
Story is a portal, a hallucination within the hallucination, the closest we'll ever come to escape. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess you could say it that way. I mean, sure. I, I think, I mean, escape from what though? Because I mean, that's the truth. When you think about, you know, theory of mind, which they say happens when we're about, you know, between three and five, which is when we sort of realize that, that we're not, that, that, that we aren't solipsists. In other words, each person has a different reality in their own head. And I think that's the truth. When people talk about objective reality, I think that's a myth. What do you mean by that? Because how could we know anything, quote unquote, objectively, when everything we know, we know through our five, our five senses, and we, we make sense of it, again, based on what? Based on what our past experiences taught us those things mean. And that's what consciousness is, because we all have that one goal, you know, like what they say, you know, procreate, of course, and survive. And so from the time we're tiny. That's why we've got that avidity for patternicity. What am I gonna learn that's gonna help me survive? What do I need to know? What metric do I need to know? And I don't mean this, I don't mean this purely transactionally, but what do I need to know to get my, my needs met? I mean, you often hear sort of the, the, the short version of Maslow's you know, hierarchy of needs where the, you know, the top is you know, connection and sense of purpose and the bottom is you know, food, water, shelter. But there's something that we need long before food, water, shelter. And that's someone who cares enough about us to give us those things. And that's why as kids, we are constantly trying to figure out what do I need to do to get my needs met? So I'm not going to come home from kindergarten and find, you know, mom and dad have moved away. Like, what do I do? And we don't think, oh, this is what my mom and dad does, or this is what they do in my town or my religion or my culture. We think, this is what the world is. This is the right way to do things. This is how we do things. Again, because we're wired to live and, you know, makes sense if you only have a group of 150 and it's never going to be 150 different people, just those people. Yeah, it makes total sense. Now it makes no sense. So that's where we get, again, what I call misbeliefs, which are ways of looking at human nature that we were taught early in life and that we extrapolated early in life that turn out perhaps to have been adaptive at that time, but are maladaptive when we get out into the world. And that's where story can counter that because it can take us through situations and go, oh, wait a minute, let me question that thing that I didn't think that I thought just was, but now I realize I don't have to look at it that way. Maybe if I look at it this other way and see it differently, I can solve you know, whatever this, this problem is or try this new thing or come out of my comfort zone. And that's, that's what I believe is our current predicament as a species, actually. But we'll come back to that a little bit later, which is the whole purpose of my upcoming book. But before that, I want to talk a little bit more about the function that story serves in our daily life. And that is, as you say, it's not the function of, of, of story to help us escape reality, but actually to navigate reality. So story is kind of like our brain's compass. It's like our brain's GPS navigation system that tells us where we're coming from, where we're at and where we're going and what's the best possible directions that we should follow to get wherever it is that we're trying to get to. That's what the function of story is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And what we use to make sense of things is the past, is our story-specific past. In other words, and we're constantly doing it. I mean, think about like if your significant other says, I know that things have been rough lately, 
I will call you at five o'clock, I promise. And then they don't. You don't just go, oh, well, and you go on. You start thinking, uh oh, what happened? And then you turn to the past and you start to think of all the stuff. Well, they were mad at me because of this. Well, there was that weird guy down the street who was following them. Oh my God, did we get the car fixed? Did I see a spaceship over? Could they have been? I mean, instantly you run over all the different possibilities and try to figure out, okay, which is the one that happened? So you can figure out what to do. You can figure out, are you safe or are you not? Are they safe? What should you do? That story, that's how we navigate reality. And again, we come to story for <laughs> a phrase that has, has, a, has taken on a different meaning than when I was started to use it, which is we come for me too moments. And by that, I mean, me too, I felt that too. Me too, I thought that made me look weird. I thought that that was a strange thing. I thought I was the only one. And then we find out, no, there are other reasons and people will get it. And what you thought made you really weird is actually what makes you really weird in a good way. That's what we come for, another way to look at it. I mean, I tend to think of it as reframing, right? I looked at it one way, the story is gonna now pull me out. I'll be able to look at how I see things from a different point of view. And now I realize I can solve that problem or I'm not as strange as I thought, or I am strange and I need help. <laughs> Whatever that might be, that's what story does. It takes us inside and get and reframes and allows us to see into the depth of, of what might be happening and what we should do about it. And again, to do that, whether you're writing a story, then it comes in the protagonist's backstory, which is the most fundamental layer of story. And in our lives, it comes from our own backstory. It's how we make sense of everything is from the past. Yeah, and I think that's also why Neil Gaiman says that story is the way for us to walk in somebody else's shoes probably yeah. the only way that we know of walking into someone else's shoes really exactly i mean as i say to writers all the time your protagonist's brain is the control center of your novel because everything that happens in a story gets its meaning and emotional weight based on one thing and one thing only and that's how it's affecting that person given the tough decision that they've got to make and yeah, again, as we were saying earlier, I mean, when you're in a story, F fMRI studies show the same areas of your brain light up as would light up if you were doing what the main character is doing. I mean, you literally are there. That's why, you know, it does put that time out on reality. And, you know, you can stay up reading all night or binge watching these days, <laughs> binge watching Netflix, you know, till the sun comes up because you really are there. I mean, again, world's first virtual reality because it doesn't just do what I think a lot of VR does, which is just take you to a different physical place. It puts you inside someone's experience in that place because that's what matters, not being in the external place, but, but how whatever that problem is in that external place is, faith, is, 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 is affecting the person based on what they want, based on their agenda, based on what it means to them, based on how it's gonna change how they see themselves and how they're afraid or want, depending on which one, probably flip sides of the same coin, other people to see them. And I think Mr. Rogers used to say that it's really hard to dislike someone once you've heard their story. So true, because we tend to project. I think one of the biggest problems that we have as humans is that we look at someone else's life and some decision they've got to make, and we see it in a vacuum. You know, like you go, well, it would just have taken you five minutes to do, you know, whatever the thing is. And you're going, oh, my God, if you were in my life, I'm only getting three hours of sleep and I get up and I got to take the kids to school and then I got to do. How could I possibly make time to do something else? But if we see it as it's just five minutes, what's the big deal? 
And now we can write that person off. I mean, that is the problem. Life, like stories, are layered. We never do anything for one reason. We always do things for a ton of different reasons. And everything affects everything else. I think my favorite line, favorite line, comes from The Sopranos, best show ever. <laughs> and it, it's like I think it's the finale of the fifth season. It's uh, the name of the I think the name of the episode is All Due Respect. And Tony Soprano is talking uh, is talking about his uh, consigliere as Sil has tried to get him to off his cousin Tony B, and he doesn't want to do it. And he looks at him and he goes, "You don't understand. Every decision I make affects every facet of everything else. It's too much. It's too much almost. And in the end, you're all alone with it." And that's the truth. Every decision we make affects every facet of everything else. And when we're making decisions, all those layers are there. And that's why you really get to know someone by being in their story, because you see all those layers. You see all of the things that one decision pulls on. Well, Lisa, we've been talking a lot about sort of what story is, how it works, the, the, the neuroscience, the evolutionary background and baggage of story, the chemistry of story, the functional sort of purpose of story. Let me try and flip up the script here a little bit. So I recently read uh, Jonathan Gottschall's uh, most recent book, which is called The Storytelling Paradox, how our love of storytelling builds societies and tears them down. So you, you kind of get the, the, the clue or the promise already in the title, but let me give you an even more pointed kind of quote from the very book and see how that reflects true story and, and what it tells us about story and where we're at, where we're at and, and maybe even the, where my book would or wouldn't be. So that's uh, the quote from Jonathan Gottschall. Story science reveals that everything good about story is the same as everything bad. And then a little bit later he says, to get good people to behave monstrously, you must first tell them a story. And then a little bit later he gets to the point of his entire book and he says, so the real question is, how can we save the world from stories? I would have to read the book to answer that because I don't think that we can because story is, <laughs> it's funny, nothing in a story is neutral, but story is neutral. He's 100% right. You can go 100% in the wrong direction and 100% in the right direction. But I think the point is we make sense of things through story. I don't think there's any way to undo that whatsoever. Yeah, one little tweak here though. He actually quotes... Uh, some professor, and I forget if he's in linguistics or literature or science, but he quotes someone saying that there is nothing, the, the, no story ever is neutral. <laughs> Just well, I, like the Tony I, Soprano example you were giving a second before, all stories have so many layers of repercussions and, and it's hard to unpack the bad from the good and they're so complex and so multi-layered and so complicated. I agree. No, I didn't mean that a story itself could ever be neutral. That's 100% true. There's no such thing as a, as a neutral story. If, if it's neutral, it's not a story because a story is about how somebody makes a tough decision and has to choose this over that. And that's never neutral. I meant the notion of story itself, meaning it can be used for bad 
in the same way it can be used for good. 100%. It can do it can cause people to do awful things, as I think we're seeing a lot of right now. And it can cause people to do great things. It just depends on the story itself and and the agenda of the storyteller. I mean, absolutely. So you're in California, right? I am. So here's a story that seems to be popular among some people. There is these Jewish billionaires with secret satellites in space who shoot lasers down to California to start all these forest fires deliberately. I remember Now, <laughs> that's a story. And right. it's it's kind of a, you know, popular story within a specific segment, it seems, of the population, right? So, and there's endless stories like that. Uh, you couldn't have a Hitler without Mein Kampf, which is in a way of sto a story of, you know, Lebenstrom and, you know, uh, how uh, the, 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 the villain of his story are the Jews, for example, right? So the, the way to succeed in his story is to, quote, exterminate the Jews, to kill the villain, and create Lebenstrom for the future of the Third Reich. So uh, the same with Stalin, the story of communism and, and, and totalitarianism, Pol Pot, all the, you know, Mao Zedong, uh, you know, the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, all the greatest crimes against humanity, ancient or modern, every single one of them required a story. Oh, 100%. I mean, but saying, the thing we need to get rid of stories is like saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of a great analogy. It would be like trying to say, okay, we're going to cut all your ears off, but people are going to keep talking. I mean, in other words, it doesn't matter if you try to say it in another way. We're wired for story. There, there's no way to get rid of stories whatsoever because we are inherently, no matter what we hear, we're going to turn around and we're going to try to figure out, given what I believe, given who I am, given what my agenda is, given what I need, is this going to help me or hurt me? Does this fit in with it or doesn't it? Is it dangerous to me or isn't it? And there's, there's, there's no possible way around that. That is how we make sense of things. That is how we will always make sense of things. Because if you think about making sense of any, how could we make sense of things in any other way? Because our goal, you know, biological imperative, psychological imperative, and again, the brain being part of the body and the brain's goal is to protect the body and to protect the psychological self at the same time. So that is who we are. How could we ever not have that metric in order to make sense of things? That That's, Otherwise, we would we'd walk off cliffs. We'd walk in front of cars. We'd we wouldn't have any way of any again metric to figure things out. And because the metric is always subjective, it's always going to be story. But again, you're absolutely right. I mean, and 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 part of and this is the key thing I think, and it's what I talk about a lot in my new book. Because when you're creating a story like what you're, it's one thing to create a novel or a movie or a TV show, right? You're not inherently first and foremost, although you certainly do anyway, trying to get somebody to do a particular thing. But if you're talking about Hitler or you're talking about QAnon with the, you know, <laughs> yeah. lasers and whatever. Hillary has a child uh, pornography right. ring in a pizza shop in, in right. Washington, D.C. that doesn't, in the basement, which doesn't even have a basement. But That's anyway. It. But but think about that story. Think about the think about that story. That guy who went in with a gun, looking looking for the kids in the basement, and, you know, not finding a basement. 
he was primed. The story he heard was kids are being harmed. Kids are being hurt. You got to go save them. He saw himself as a hero. He was going to go in and he thought he was doing a good thing. He didn't think he was a you know, nut job with a gun who's out there you know, going to harm people for people trying to eat their pizza and having their evenings ruined. He thought he was trying to help people. And the point is, the point I wanted to make talking about creating stories that are meant to get people to do a particular thing, you kind of figure out what do they need? What is it? How is that thing that you want them to do? How is that going to make them feel good about themselves? How is that going to give them something that they need, that they want, that they want, that is going to make them feel like I'm a good person. I have a sense of purpose. I have meaning in this world. And that is why people are easily radicalized because, I mean, especially with QAnon, which is brilliant at going to all of the different, I mean, it's not just white supremacists, but it's like yoga moms and the wellness community is really figuring out what matters to them and how we can, can we turn around and make them do something or pull them into what we believe that's going to conform to what they already believe and it's going to make them feel meaningful. So I forget what was the name of the company that, that they said was like, you know, the trafficking kids inside lockers that they were selling, or I can't remember what the name of the of the company was where, yeah, because of if you look inside and they've got the number of the of whatever that locker thing was, and they're actually got children locked in. And people, again, how ridiculous is that? And yeah, but, but the, does it make them feel good about themselves? Yeah, but the point though is that you know, I get a lot of pushback from scientists that I talk to, and th there's been even from people like Jacques Fresco, who is the founder of the Venus Project, even before that. Uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, you know, hundreds of years ago, and even today, many scientists believe that the cure for that problem of story and about how arbitrary it is and how much of a double-edged sword it is, the cure is, they say, science, and in, special, in general, but in particular, according to both Arthur Schopenhauer and Jacques Fresco and a few other modern proponents, a new language which is not arbitrary, like the language that we have now, and subjective and subject to interpretation, but a language in the sort of, in the spirit of math, in the vein of math, where ones and zeros cannot be debated, and where you have crystal clarity about what people talk about. And that's how Arthur Schopenhauer believed uh, you can have two people discussing ethics and come up to universal conclusions only if you have that kind of a linguist uh, language based on pure math or science and logic. You consciousness. You have no consciousness then. That makes no sense. Who decides that? Who decides that? You think things are black and white? That's based on some sort of binary world out there. And that's just not true. I mean, to me, that is <laughs> what you just said. I will say this is like the pinnacle of the patriarchy is the pinnacle of, we are so afraid of emotion. We are so afraid of being unsure. We are so afraid of that. We're gonna make defined things in a way, who's gonna be the one to define it? Who's objective? What does that even mean? How could you possibly do that? And who would want it? I mean, what does life look like if there was an answer to everything and everybody believed the same thing and saw, it's, just, it's, it's physically impossible. 
it's Jack boring. Fresco and Arthur Schopenhauer would want it and believe it. <laughs> I mean, it makes it makes literally. I mean, it's a it's like religion. It's a closed set. It, it I can't I can't even wrap my brain around it, and it sounds really awful. And it sounds to me like men afraid of emotion. I mean, honestly, that's what I feel. I feel like the reason we live in the world that we do in the quote unquote data driven world is because men are taught from a very early age to be terrified of emotion because they're taught that if you're, you, know, you got to be strong, you don't cry, you don't feel anything. And so they're, you know, women are the ones I think, I think, I think, and if you talk to evolutionary biologists now, I mean, they'll say the smartest amongst us are neuroscientists are not people who are great at data. The smartest amongst us are people who have emotional intelligence, meaning they can read other people, meaning they understand the meanings of things, meaning they don't need things to be static. I mean, what you just said about Schopenhauer, I mean, I mean that, sounds, that sounds like stasis. That sounds like who would want that? I can't even imagine it. But it isn't binary, and it is messy, and it is mucky. And what's right? I mean, again, we always think we'll go, people will go, do the right thing, as if there is a right thing to do and every, every other thing is wrong. And if there's a right thing to do and it's right for everybody and nothing is right for everybody, any decision we make is gonna have unintended consequences, both good ones and bad ones. It's just the way that it works because we live in a complicated world. And the fear of emotion and the fear of that complexity to wanna to bring it down to ones and zeros is inhuman. I mean, it that's Boolean logic, you know, but I feel the same way like you for different reasons. Actually, I love the fact that you're kind of bringing this kind of a feminist story uh, perspective to that conversation, because I think it's it's very uh, worthy to be brought in here because, and of course, a as a man myself, I'm the first one to miss that point that you just brought in, which is like a perfect example, as you said, of men being afraid of emotion. But my my reply to Fresco when I was interviewing him uh, at the time was basically that uh, the richness and the, the the possibility of the future is stored in 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 precisely in the vagueness and, and in the ambiguity of our language, and that's where new possibilities are born. That's where new realities are born. Uh, and therefore, if if you just have everything in zeros and ones crystal clear, it will be impoverished and probably even non-functional, in my view. But more than that, when you talk about, I mean. The place that I have a hard time with also is generalities and abstractions because they don't exist. We made them up. Everything. That's why we think in story. I mean, no matter what you, if you defined a word and go, this is what it means, everybody would still read a different meaning into it. When people go, love, beauty, hate, loyalty, what does that mean to you? I would say, define that. What does that actually mean? Boots on the ground. What does it look like? Because otherwise, it's vague. Otherwise, it's something that has no meaning, has no legs, can't go forward. We can't anticipate it because it's a big, it's like, you know how so many businesses will have like, this is what we do. And you're reading it going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what any of this means because everything is this generality, generality built on generality. And it, 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 makes, it makes no, it literally makes no sense. That's sort of what we've come down to because in our day-to-day -day lives, everything is specific. 
You know, I mean, at the end of the day, people go, well, somebody's got abandonment issues, you know, and I always say, you know, show me the person who doesn't have abandonment issues and I'll show you the person who hasn't figured it out yet. We all have abandonment issues. But if you had like a hundred people who said, I have abandonment issues and you sat them down in a room or these days out in the field, because we don't want to be in a room with a hundred people, but, you know, out in a field and said, tell me what that's like. Like, what does abandonment issue mean to you? You'd get a hundred different answers. Some of them would seem mutually exclusive because it comes down to what happened in that person's life, the meaning they read into it, what they did as a result. It's a, that's all we are. Each one of us is that. Each one of us is a world. I think there's a, I got to bastardize it. I'm not sure where it came from. I think it's an African saying is something like every time an old person dies, a library burns to the ground. And I think that's so true. The beauty and richness in life is in our differences is in the way that we see things and being able then to come down and come to our commonalities at the same time. I think if anything is going to save us from the, I mean, look at how polarized we all are now, right? I'm really polarized. It is going to be coming down and finding the common humanity and then being able to, I mean, once again, find some kind of compromise or consensus, which seems we're going to come back to that. And, and that's what I believe would be the function of that new story that I think we need to write down. But um, and by the way, the quote that you just gave is a favorite quote among the transhumanists sort of uh, within um, uh, <laughs> within our community. Uh, so the, all, all the transhumanist members in, in my audience love that quote as a justification for life extension technology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, if I could just butt right in right there. When I say, in my opinion, when you talk about a, you know, a library burning the ground, I don't mean a library like these books over here, and it's written this way. The point of a library, I mean the, the interpretation that that person brings to those facts, and that's constantly moving. There's no way to hold on to that and quantify it and you know, put it literally onto a shelf on that level. I meant literally the humanity of that person and what they would do in different situations, because it's always something different. I mean, it, you know, again, it depends on what they're pulling from their past and their unique way of seeing it. But it's, it's, I don't think it's anything that could be preserved. That's the beauty of it. If it didn't burn to the ground, that would be awful. <laughs> well, be that as it may. Now I've offended uh, transhumanists. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, say, say again. I said, so now I've offended all the transhumanists. I'm sorry. Well, we, we might actually come back to that a little bit later when we're talking about the actual re rewriting of the future story, because one of the stories that I had considered and I had originally thought could be a potential candidate for the future human story was the transhumanist story. But after 10 years of kind of working with it, I've concluded that's not going to be the story of the future, and it shouldn't be for a number of reasons, and it can't be for a number of other reasons. But let's not go ahead of ourselves. So I, I first want to make it a little bit more specific by asking you this. What's your story, Lisa? Uh, in other words, who is Lisa Krohn in your own words, and how did you come across the power of story? <sighs> Well, <laughs> let me let me answer that that last question first. I mean, I have loved stories ever since I was a kid. I mean, I have loved stories. I got I've gotten lost in stories. I noticed at a certain point that I was calling on stories and fictional characters, and I was trying to figure out what to do in my own life way more than I was looking at 
What would my mom do? What would my dad do? What would my best friend do? So I don't think I realized the transformative power of story until much later. What happened to me was, and this is just how I came to what I wrote, is that I had worked you know, in publishing and I'd worked uh, with writers. And then I was reading books to film for, for William Morris, for Warner Brothers, for a number of the studios. And I had to analyze them. You have to read them very quickly. I could read, I could read a thousand page manuscript overnight, like literally overnight. Wow. And you couldn't just go, this would make a great movie, but this wouldn't, or this sucks. You had to say why. And I started to notice that everything I'd been taught and everything that I believe, because I, I firmly say to writers all the time, everything you've been taught about writing is wrong. So what I believed would pull me in turns out to be the opposite of what pulled me in. What pulled me in was something I had never been taught at all, which is, doesn't matter how quote unquote beautifully written it is, it doesn't plot, is irrelevant on one level. People go, you know, plot driven novel, no such thing all novels are character driven, that if it wasn't affecting someone, if they didn't come in with an agenda and they wanted something, if they didn't have a misbelief or something that was holding them back, if they weren't making sense in the moment, on the page of what was happening as they tried to really struggle with what they should do, because in, in, a, in a story that works, in every scene, characters got to make a difficult decision that gets them closer and closer and closer to solving the problem or further away sometimes, you know, and what they want, that that's what was pulling me in, this internal reaction that the character was having, the way that they were making sense of it. And I realized nobody else was teaching that. Nobody else. And I realized that that the, the fundamental story logic does not come from the plot. It's nothing to do with a plot. Story logic is the internal subjective logic that the protagonist is using to make sense of what's going on. And our sense of you know, in literature as in life, right? Our sense of, of subjective logic comes from that one place and one place only, but our past experiences taught us that those things mean. And which meant that in order to write anything or do anything, you had to fully create a story specific, not a character bio or any of that sort of stuff, a story specific backstory that brought the character to where they were and that they would be plumbing all the way through as they, as they you know, went, went through and, and there, internal narrative change, which was the, you know, this, this the narrative, uh, you know, the story's narrative thread. And luckily for me at that moment, neuroscience was just having that boom. I mean, it was everywhere. And I went from thinking, okay, this is what I believe to this is biology. And I cannot tell you how thrilling that was. I cannot tell you how thrilling that was. And also for, for all the things that one might think or that I might think about, you know, the internet and everything being at your fingertips and social media, Truly, it was a time where I could read an article like in the Washington Post or the Atlantic or the New York Times that quoted some, you know, someone on some sort of neuroscientific study or paper. And within 10 minutes, I could be reading the paper. I could, I could, I could have read the you know, doctoral thesis. The, I mean, it was amazing. And it was so, at one point when I was writing my first book, um, Wired for Story, I thought, well, I want to see what's being taught in cognitive science. So I went and I actually bought a cognitive science textbook which was like, like 150 bucks, right? They're so expensive. And I started to read it and it was, it was 10 years out of date. It was shocking to me. I was reading it going, that's not true. Well, this study said this one. In other words, everything was cutting edge. And that made me an evangelist for story because I realized it's not just for writers at all. Story is 
how we make sense of things. And there's no way, that's why we talk about the ones and zeros and men who are so deeply scared of emotion or feeling anything, or God forbid, making a mistake, they're gonna turn it into ones and zeros and make it something antiseptic that could not work because we're wired for story. We make sense of things based on something very human boots on the ground. And that was thrilling. And that's why I sort of went back and forth about writing this latest book, Story or Die, because I was scared of the business world. I mean, I have been like this when it comes to advertising my whole life. It's, it's like the work of the devil for the very reason that you said, you can convince people to buy stuff that they don't need. You can convince people to do stuff that they absolutely shouldn't do. And it scared me, but then I realized, you know what? This is how we communicate for better or worse. And I wanna get that out there. That, and of course, my other goal in life is to change how the world looks at emotion. You know, this, the whole notion, as I said earlier, as emotion, meaning emotional, meaning something is so over the top that you're going to make a bad decision. And that is just not what emotion is. I mean, people even kills me when I'm watching stuff now and they'll go, oh, they got, and they got emotional or they, and they felt it's, it's an emotional feel. It's like emotion telegraphs meaning. All emotion does is take what something means to us and instantly lets us know what that is. So we don't have to stop and think about it. Right. doesn't mean we don't think also but it just telegraphs meaning. And so if we're emotional, it means- I we think emotion- Beliefs. Emotion also comes from Latin, and I forget, I think the root is movere or imovere, which literally means to move from, from Latin, which means to take action. So emotion literally makes you get off your ass and do something. Right, exactly. You know, either run away from the tiger because you're full of fear and you're scared for your life or go and talk to that beautiful girl at the other end of the bar or, uh, you know, buy that car that's going to make you look 40 years younger. Uh, you know, all those things. <laughs> but, that, but, but you're making sense of it that going, that will make me look younger. Or it can be used against us like if you look at the, uh, you know, the housing boom, you know, the, the what am I trying to say? The, the lending boom that, that broke, you know, that destroyed the- 2008 economy. crisis, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they had those liar loans and, and they would say to people, you can afford this, don't you want a home? It's gonna really make you feel like something, your family's gonna thank you. And they played into what we've really all got, which is that sense of, yeah, I want a home. I wanna feel that I've given something to my family. I want that sense of belonging. And they made people believe that they could actually do that. And then they said, it's funny, my brother-in-law at that time, they were taking out a, uh, a second mortgage and he, like, he got all the paperwork, like, cause he's, he's, he's a tech guy actually. So he had like all the paperwork in order and he took it to the bank and they said, oh, we don't need to see that. We just believe you. It's like they were misleading people. And that's how everything fell apart because they got more money, the more they loaned and they built it all up. They, you know, cut it all up and sold it out and et cetera, et cetera. And then everything collapsed, but they understood what their, what their audience wanted, which was- Derivatives that are a story, really, a particular story for particular buyers, a type of a, you can call it even a mathematical story or algorithmical story or a stock market story, but it's really is a story in that context. But what they're hearing is you're smart for the people who bought the derivatives. You're smart. If you buy that, you're smarter than everybody else. It doesn't matter what happens. You're going to make a lot of money. And what, the, what they're hearing there is I'm going to be a success. I will feel good about myself, my family will, and look at all the stuff I'm going to get. And of course, you know, whatever that stuff meant to them, it's not just having stuff for the sake of having stuff, but it's 
it's the specific stuff that each of those specific people would have wanted and it's what those things would have made them feel about themselves and what they would have thought the world would have said about them. And that would have made them feel good. And that's what it was about always. It's always about if I do this, how is it going to make me feel? It make me feel good? It make me feel like I'm myself, like I have purpose, like I matter or not? Or is it going to make me feel vulnerable? And that's the most scary thing. You know, people often do things they know they shouldn't because if they stick up for not doing it, they're going to feel vulnerable. And that's yeah. And actually, uh, Jonathan Gotcho, I think, uh, in the book that I quoted from, gives the story of uh, sad Edna, always a bridesmaid, ne- always a bridesmaid, never a, a bride, as a very good um, or a bad actually, example of this kind of insufficiency marketing that creates a sort of a problem and and starts selling mouthwash of all other things. Oh, absolutely. Toothpaste, when it first came in, it was like, my God, if you have bad breath, you're not going to get married. I mean, absolutely. They created, you know, fears and and needs that people did not have. But, But that brings us to the point that story, and that's kind of the sort of my my current level of understanding and conclusion. And I I just want to move to the second part of our conversation from here on, actually, which is going to be more about tech and stuff. But so far, it seems to me that story is both the poison and the cure. It is 100%. That's why that's why when I said it was neutral, I meant you could use it either way, 100%. But you can't not use it. At the end of the day, it doesn't even if you give people facts, and you go, I'm just going to give you this data, they're going to spin it into story anyway. Because that is just the natural lens that we have to make sense of things. That time is meaningless without the story, right? So Right, because story puts it into context that yeah. lets us know how it's going to affect us. And that's what we're looking for. This is who I am. This is what I need. You know, this is what's going to keep me alive. That's the context. How is this going to have an effect, you know, in whatever way it's going to be, that's going to affect me in my life? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? Mm-hmm. And we're going to do that no matter what. Your brain's going to do that no matter what. Because we're constantly on the lookout with, am I safe or am I not? And also the sad thing is, again, being wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore, people go, you know, why is it that people are are so much more, you know, focused on what's going to happen now or this week or next week? Why can't they have that long-term planning? And it's because we're not wired for that. We're wired to, you know, if we made it to tomorrow, yay us. We're not wired to have the long outlook. We're wired to, am I safe right now? It's hard to have that five-year plan or 10-year plan or with climate change, you know, to think, okay, not only is climate change hard because it's ephemeral, meaning, okay, so I'm going to drive my car and maybe at some point that's going to do something and that's going to go there. And now, you know, we're going to have a tornado, you know, in downtown Los Angeles. It's like, how can I see that? That, that cause and effect. It's very hard to see. So we tend to not see it at all. I actually think the reason that I just watched the other night, the Hulu show on the Sacklers, um, I think it's called Dope Sick. And I was thinking, why is it that, I mean, there's so many evil corporations out there. Let's be honest, right? There's so many evil, I mean, look at, you know, Monsanto and I mean, just, you know, Roundup and all this all. Why were the Sacklers So on one level, easy to see and take down. And it's because it was the one thing where you really see the cause and effect one-on-one. They made pills that people got addicted to and one-on-one, they took the pill, they got addicted, they died. You can see the causality. It is right there. And I think that that's why- It's an easy story to tell. Exactly. They became the the most evil family in the, and I'm thinking, 
well, okay, yeah, they're pretty evil, but I betcha that you could find families that are just as quote unquote evil if you want to look at, you know, at, at what they've done to the world and to other people. It's just, it's so clear to see it with the sacrifice because we can see the causality. The pill, the person takes it, they, they die. Got it. Very clear. Yeah, let's let's move on to our uh, kind of sort of the meat of the matter, if you will. Uh, even though I'm vegan, like, which is one of my kind of stories that I have embraced for the last six years. But anyway, how does story relate to technology? And is story not a technology itself? Is it not even the best technology, as I claim in my book, uh, sort of outlined so far? And, and here's what I mean by this. I have a little bit of a different definition of what story is than you. So uh, Kenneth Burke's definition of story is story as equipment for living. And my claim is that our equipment is kind of getting obsolete in the sense that the old stories that we've been using so far, which have served us well for many years, are kind of now not serving us anymore. So in other words, they've gone obsolete. Our equipment is too old to serve us today. And so, and I think Kenneth Burke's definition is a good start, but I think Jeff Deschambeau brings the essential elements together in defining story as information processing technology. Uh, because stories about information transfer from one person or another, or from one timeline to another, for, you know, from an older generation to a newer generation. But it's about processing. It's about that kind of change that you're talking about in the protagonist, you know, that's the processing of, of the information. And the final part, the technology part is that uh, it's an invention of the human mind. It does not exist in nature on its own. And if we define technology as, for example, Angus Fletcher and Kevin Kelly do, which is technology is anything useful invented by the human mind, then okay. technology is a tool, really. It's an invention of the human mind, and it is very useful for our evolutionary survival. As you said, we are wired for story. We wouldn't be here without a story. Story is what makes us different from the other species. And so, therefore, it's a technology in that sense, just like soft. And people struggle with, like, how is it technology? But I'm, I'm like, well, just like software, you know, it doesn't exist because people tell me, well, story doesn't exist. It's not physical. I'm like, well, software doesn't exist, really. But software is technology and story is our software, really, kind of like our software, neuro software, if you want to call it. The way we process is our software, is our story. And so my claim is that, so I start with story as defined as information processing technology. And I say that what makes uh, what makes it the most important and valuable invention, technological invention, is the fact that, you know, there have been civilizations without the wheel. There have been civilizations without the internet. There have been civilizations without nuclear power or any other amazing technological invention you want to give as your candidate for the best invention. But I say there's never been a civilization without story. Exactly. Therefore story is the most important and valuable invention that human species have come up with so far and all human civilizations had story as the cornerstone as the bedrock 
for the foundation of that civilization. I agree, but the only thing that the, my only question for you is when you say, you know, story is our like best invention, most important invention. And I would say it's not an invention. It's how we see things. We didn't invent story. We didn't come up with what story is. Story is the same way we didn't invent sight, right? We see things. We didn't invent sight. We didn't invent hearing. We didn't invent sound. We, we changed sound into words so that we could make, you know, make sense of things on, on that level. But story is, is literally how we're wired to make sense of things. It's not an invention. That's it's the only place where I take exception to some of what Brene Brown says when she talks about the story we tell ourselves, it sounds to me like there's intentionality there. We are intentionally telling ourselves a story, we're making some, and it's it's not true. It's it's the way that we have made sense of things. Now, we definitely might've made sense of things wrong, right? Because all we can do is assume, you know, what other people are thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. Because if we if we don't know why they're doing what they're doing, how can we function with them? How can we be sure we're doing something they're gonna like and we're gonna to stay together? So we're constantly reading intent. We're constantly reading meaning into what other people do because if we didn't, how would we know who was safe and who wasn't? But it's not, it's not, it's not conscious, it's not intentional. We're not making up a story. It's just the way that our brain processes information to go with your, with your I totally agree. It is the software, but we didn't invent the software. It's, it, it evolved. That's what we've got. And when you're saying some of the stories don't work, you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think most of the stories that civilizations, especially some of the civilizations now are built on are, are, are damaging, are, you know, are, I think, I mean, I personally believe, I mean, you know, in this country, we are built on racism. We are built on racism. We have systemic racism built into everything that we do. It's invisible. I think that on top of that with the stories that we tell ourselves that worldwide, the last acceptable, and I don't know how you pull this up, bias is misogyny. We're built on misogyny. We are built on that. Every religion is built on it. Every society is built on it. It's, it's horrific. So yeah, I'd love to change the stories. <laughs> I would love to change them in such a big way. But uh, well, you know, my wife doesn't do dishes and doesn't uh, do laundry and uh, doesn't cook. So we're trying to change that story. Uh, one. I mean, you, but just you have to say that. I mean, just it's, that's that's fabulous. <laughs> you have to say that. I mean, because it's so deeply built into all of us. I mean, you know, find me. You know, talk to find me any woman who, no matter what. I mean, maybe if you isn't going. If only I could lose that five pounds. I mean, we are so built from the time we're tiny, not because, I mean, I firmly believe that gender is nothing but a social construct, 100%. There is nothing in male, the male or female way of seeing things that isn't purely a social construct from the time we're tiny. But again, once we're wired for something, when we take that in as small children, not as, well, this is kind of what, what this per, you know, particular person or society is teaching me, it's, this is the way it is. It's so hard to pull it up. I don't know that you can because so much is built on it. It's the bedrock of how we see things. So, yeah, I do think we need new stories. 100%. I completely agree with you. Right. But before we get there, though, uh, Tell me. where does the relationship between story and technology come into play? And how does it do that in your view? Because just to supply one example of a person that we both love and admire deeply, Seth Godin says that, for example, Facebook and Google 
are not a triumph of technology, but rather a triumph of storytelling. Well, and I love Seth Godin. I do. Um, I think the problem is, I think the problem with all social media is that, as I was saying earlier, we're wired to live in a world that we don't live in anymore. And we're wired to live in a world of one-on-one. -on -one. And when people can go out and say anything, anywhere, anytime, I think that that is incredibly dangerous. I think what we've got with social media is incredibly dangerous. I have such a hard time with it. I think that that notion, the Mark Zuckerberg notion of, well, you know, true ideas, you know, the truth will win because people will see, it just isn't how we're wired. So, I mean, I left Facebook, I guess two or three years ago, I would never go back. I think it is one of the most dangerous places on the planet. I wouldn't go back for business reasons. I wouldn't go back for any reason because it puts, not only does it put misinformation out there, forget that part of it, but the algorithm, talk about technology that is so incredibly dangerous with Google, with, with Facebook, with, with, with YouTube is what's, is what's doing us in. I firmly believe it. I think it is so incredibly dangerous. I think we were much safer without it for obvious reasons. Look at the world right now. But but to sort of put words into Seth Godin's mouth here, the way I interpret what he's saying is that, you know, really Facebook and Twitter and Instagram did not uh, come up with anything really unique other than simply come up with a new platform for storytelling. Absolutely. That's 100%. And, so, and gave people sort of the, the idea or the presumption that they can really control their own stories. So it gives them these neat places where, you see, I get the illusion that I'm in charge of my own story because I can get to set up my own profile and post the pictures that that tell this story about who I am. And I am in control of all this narrative and the whole story about who I am, it's me. And so in a way, you can say Facebook and other social media in general are simply utilizing the story in a new way with a new sort of a technological platform, but really at the core of it is like hacking story. Absolutely. I mean, but, but here's the thing. I mean, think about, think about like, like with Instagram recently and all the trouble that Facebook has had over Instagram or meta. <laughs> it just makes my eyes feel so far back in my head. I don't think they're going to come down meta. Um, totally destroyed a word that I loved. But, but they were talking about what it does to, you know, to, to teenage girls, right? And young girls and all of that. But what it's really talking about is misogyny. What it's really talking about is society tells girls they've got to be thin, they've got to be pretty, they've got to look a certain way, they've got to be attractive to boys. That is where, that is the metric for females. If you're attractive to boys, that's what matters most. If you're thin, that's what matters most. If you're pretty, if you're white, if you're blah, blah, blah. And it's just a way to take us out of our real story, because I think it's fake. I really do. A real story is personal one-on-one. -on -one. A real story is being in a room with 
other people so that we've got the mirror neurons so that we're actually interacting on them that way, as opposed to being able to be out there and to putting, I mean, even the, you know, the Instagram influencers, I mean, my God, I just, <laughs> again, it makes me so crazy because all of it is fake. All of it is for, is to have a particular image to come off in a particular way, as opposed to actually doing a really human thing, which is one-on-one. -on -one. In a way, all stories are kind of if not fake, at least as we discussed, subjective, right? So in That's a way, there's no true or quote real story because it's all a connection of stories. I just watched the movie that I actually watched last night was uh, Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, written by um, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck again. And it, it tells the story about this these two knights that, that have the last duel in France in like the 14th century. And it tells the, the movie from three points of view. The woman that gets raped, mm -hmm. her husband, mm -hmm. and the guy who does the raping. Mm -hmm. So three stories are woven into this one story and how it shows the movie from these three perspectives mm -hmm. and how it's very different from the woman's perspective. Talk about patriarchy, by the way. That's like shocking stuff there in the 14th century, of course. And yeah, then, yeah, true. then the husband, whose kind of property rights were violated, right. really, not anything else. And then the guy who actually did the raping, and he's like, ah, you know, she did the, you know, the honorary screaming a little bit. But, you know, she's a lady. Of course, she would scream. It's not like it was a rape. So that was kind of his defense, defense towards his best friend, right? But anyway, so there's these three stories. And in a way, they contain true elements in all of them. Well, of course they do. But but if you're talking about Facebook or Instagram, it is different. It is not the same because people, I mean, first of all, people can talk, can, can go and, and say things anonymously, which is horrible in my opinion. So you get the trolls, it brings out people that way. But more than that, people look at it this way. Up until what, the 20th century, how many really attractive people could anybody ever see in their lifetime, right? Until there was like movies and TV and whatever. Not that many. You couldn't see that many because where would you see them? Once movies, TV came in and everybody became really good looking and really thin and really white, we had this thing to compare it to. Well, we yeah. had Venus de Milo before that and the statue of Zeus um, and Jupiter. I I hear, I'm not saying there was none. I'm saying it wasn't in every corner. It wasn't in every billboard. It wasn't everything you turned on. I mean, oh my God, right? It was very different. And now when people are putting things up on Instagram, it is, it is a completely other way. It is, it is not tied to anything real. It is a different kind of story. I do not think it is anything like the stories that people would have in real life, one-on-one, -on -one, back when we could be one-on-one. -on -one back when we were just in a room and it wasn't, and again, I'm not 100% against social media. I mean, I, Twitter is what I like, I go on Twitter. But what about technology in general? Which kind? Artificial intelligence, okay, if we wanna be specific, where does story come to play there? I think artificial intelligence is terrifying. I think it's- But that comes from your story about what artificial intelligence is and will be. Well, two things. One, and you can tell me that part of it comes from talking to people who are scientists working in it who are terrified of it, not just my opinion of just looking at it. Second of all, 
from what, I mean, again, I don't want to be binary, right? So I'm not going to say all good or all bad, but two things. One, I think the artificial intelligence, the algorithms with YouTube or with Facebook are deeply flawed and terrifying and part of what's wrong with the world today. That's because we are deeply flawed. 100%. And we are the ones writing those algorithms. Exactly. Exactly. That is the point. A hundred percent, which is why they're so incredibly dangerous on that level. The other terrifying thing about AI is that it doesn't have what humans have, which is emotion. It doesn't have a past. It can't make sense of things other than in the way that it's programmed to. But and, wait a second. You know, um, Yuval Noah Harari says that Homo sapiens is a serial serial murderer because all the extinct species that we know of that have happened either in Australia or in Oceania or in North America as soon as humans crossed the Bering Sea, etc., etc. And so uh, we have emotion, as you say. It hasn't stopped us from being murderous and doing We're genocides not. of all kinds. It stopped us from doing fabulous things too. We're human. Sure. We're doing both. But there's no way to stop it. I mean, in other words, if you think AI, what's the thing about AI? Like stop people, don't do anything that would harm people, don't let people do anything that, that would harm people. And that means that they're going to completely go, well, the only way to do that is to get rid of humans altogether. And now we're toast. Yeah, that's the paperclip argument that comes I from think, Nick Bostrom. Right. I think. I think, yeah, there, is there good and they're bad? Is there a food chain? I mean, animals eat each other. There's a food chain and we're part of it. And are we going to make really bad mistakes and do really dumb things? Yeah, we are. Does society have some good? Of course it does. I personally am terrified of, well, let me ask you a question. And here's what I want to ask you. How would AI make it better? If AI doesn't like like two questions how would ai make things better and since we're still human and we've still got the whatever it is that made us you know have genocide or makes us kill each other and again if you look at who kills each other most it's mostly men <laughs> so maybe if we could flip things and not have a patriarchy maybe things would get better but like so what's the real boots on the ground thing that ai could do it's going to solve that problem. What does that leave us? What does that make us and how does it get solved? Well, there have been many answers proposed to that question, but I want to flip it a little bit differently because it's also a very nice segue to the next question that I have. And, and in, in my kind of flip, you will get where I stand here. And, and this okay. is a, a quote from my outline from, I think it's chapter 11, which I call the AI story. Uh, so it's the, the last paragraph that I finish with, and it is this quote. In other words, the dangers posed by AI originate in the same place as the dangers posed by humanity, our story. If, like the human story, the AI story ends up as one of uniqueness, exclusivity, progress, supremacy, dominance, alienation, teleology, manifest destiny and godhood, then we can expect a similarly destructive impact. 
Therefore, to minimize suffering and improve our own chances of survival during the turbulent 21st century, both humanity and AI must embrace a new story, one that is decentralized, non-singular, non-hierarchical, non-speciest, non-dualistic, and non-exclusive. Because a multiplicity is ethically better than a singularity, and because it is safer too. Okay, but here's the thing. Everything you just said is conceptual. How do you do that? What does that mean? What is, what is AI actually like boots on the ground doing your life, my life, everybody's life out there, especially considering that we're all at each other's throats at the moment? Like, see, that's my problem with generalities. Oh, that sounded great. How do you do that? I have no idea how you could create a world that was, I mean, all I want to do is a simple thing. I want to flip the patriarchy. That, well, that seems easier. It's one thing. How do you do that? How do you meet people? How do you do that? And you flip the patriarchy the same way you flipped gay marriage, which is, as you say in many of your interviews, with the will and grace effect, right? So you had a story that flipped the, the, the public perception of gay marriage. The same happened with slavery. You had a new story. You had Harriet Beecher Stowe, Stowe which is, as Lincoln said, that very small woman that started that very big war, right? Uh, with a story, with a novel. It, it, was even a, it wasn't even necessarily a real, like, accurate story. It was kind of fiction. Thanks. I mean, what you just talked about would change the systems of everything, right? It would change education, it would change religion, maybe get rid of it, which would be nice. It would change, you know, how we eat. It would change, how do you do that when everybody's got their own fiefdom? Everybody, everybody's got their own world in their head. I mean, the notion of gay marriage is one thing. It's one thing, it's one stream, and it ran through a lot of stuff, and it is, it's the biggest- that's, that's why my plan is so grandiose and, and maybe arrogant, you could say in some way, or, or at least the task, the yeah. task is so demanding because it has to be such a huge story. Let, let's look at it this way. So, so you can break history in, in two ways. So first, let me do the smaller slice. The 20th century is really a struggle of three stories. Capitalism, communism, and fascism. Fascism was the first story that went dead. We still see some traces, but mostly it died with World War II. Cap communism followed it, you know, in 1981, maybe until the late 20th century. And then uh, capitalism was declared the winner and Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history shortly thereafter, right? End of it. So. That, that was kind of a clash of three gargantuan stories, stories about how a society or a civilization should, not only could, but should be organized collectively at the civilization level, whether it's fascism, communism, or capitalism. Now, I think in the 21st century, that story of capitalism is really falling apart. It's really unraveling. And we can see that happening all around us. All of our institutions are no longer up to task. So we need a new story. Another way to break that clash, by the way, if you look at it much longer time frame than just the 20th century, you can say that really there have been two stories in the history of humanity so far. The first story is religion. Religion guided us and organized us as a civilization for many thousands of years. Then we had the Enlightenment. We had the scientific revolution, 
which coincided with the Industrial Revolution. And for the first time, whether you want to call it science or whether you want to call it capitalism, we had a new revolutionary story that denied the validity of the old story and provided a new guidance, a new script, if you will, of how not only we could, but we should be organized as a civilization. That story brought us here where we are today for the last, let's say, 300 years, roughly. Well, that story, useful as it may have been, is now falling apart. And the old stories are no longer useful. So we need a new narrative, what you would call the third story, perhaps. Right. But, I mean, I would like to see, I mean, but here's the thing. What would you have people do? I mean, looking at when you were saying, okay, gay marriage, yeah, absolutely. Or ending slavery, yeah. That's one thing. Is it going to have layers that impacts all sorts of other places? Absolutely. Slavery, mostly, although while we got rid of slavery, we're still built, we still have racism, you know, from then to now, we're still built with, 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 uh, you know, systems that, that are built on the back of, of, of blacks, you know, and, and people of, of people who aren't white. It didn't change that much. But I think in order to make any change, you kind of figure out, okay, what is the one simple thing that people can do and can wrap it around and they can go, okay, yeah, I'm going to get behind it and do that. Because it's like what we were talking about with climate change before. Now, I'm terrified of it. I'm glad I'm old. It's, it's like, it's an awful thing to say, but it's like, oh my God, I feel so sorry for, you know, my kids and, and the world they're going to have. But I don't know what to do exactly. Well, you're a storyteller. You, you, you know about the power of story. We need I, to tell. So you have those people who deny the evidence of climate change, right? Because their story does I, not recognize the evidence that we take to their story. But even if they did, though, not the point. Even if they went, yeah, I believe you 100%, and now they're on our side 100%. What would they do? There's no, my point is, there's no one thing we can go, yeah, I can wrap my mind around it and I'm going to make gay marriage legal. Or yeah, I'm going to wrap my mind around it and now we're going to, we're going to make slavery illegal. Those are simple things. You got to find, even if what you want is, I mean, obviously all of us, there's no one thing that anybody can do, you know, that would stop climate change per se. But if all of us were on that same bandwagon and found the door to go in that's going to open it up and now everybody else is going to follow and maybe those other layers would start going, wait a minute, if we did this, we could do that. Maybe we won't fly so much. And maybe, I mean, the problem is our whole world is built around the things that cause climate change. So it's a massive change. I actually think the only thing that's going to change it is something that is outside of our control, like literally outside of our control, whether it's another pandemic you know, I mean, that was a chance. I mean, imagine, imagine if somebody had said before. But it is, as Epictetus says, it is not the things that happens to us. It is the stories that we attach to them. Right. But, but look at it this way. Look, think about, think about the pandemic, right? Now, before the pandemic, if somebody had said, okay, whatever your industry is, whatever your industry is, let's imagine now that for the next month, everybody in your industry is going to work from home. People would go, are you insane? We can't do that. What do you mean they're going to work? That could never work. And yet, because we had no choice, now I would have loved to have been a social scientist in the past two years. I mean, talk about all of the things that people said, oh, you could never do that. 
And yet here we are. Why did people decide, okay, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll try that. We'll stay at home for you know, a month and we'll see how that works. Of course not. We got it because we didn't have any choice. I think that the thing that will change but us- look, Shakespeare didn't have any choice when he was quarantining too, right? While he was writing some of his plays, he was in quarantine. However, we have now a story that he didn't have. And right. that story is called technology. That story is called Zoom. That's why Seth says that, you know, Google and Facebook and Zoom are a triumph of story. So the story of Zoom existed for a while, but it never had the proper context to get the idea virus to spread about the story of Zoom. The pandemic happened and it was the perfect environment within which the story of Zoom gets to spread. Exactly, but that's the point. The point is it took some external thing that nobody wanted. Both, both though, external yeah. thing and internal story, which utilized that external thing, right? Because again, Shakespeare had the same predicament, but didn't have that story as an alternative. But that's why, so today technology is providing us all these new storylines for our future, the Shakespeare and the Greeks, Pericles, when Athens had the plague, they didn't have those options, right? Because the, the, the story of technology was not giving them these new narratives that are now open to all of us. I hear you, but I would say, and, and of course, when the pandemic hit, as you said, there already was Zoom. It just you know, had to gear up. For a long time, there was Zoom. Exactly. It, it, it took that external thing, then it geared up. And you can see some of the changes, like when we first started and it comes up with that thing, you're being recorded, do you want to stay? When the pandemic started, that button wasn't there. <laughs> People would record you whether you knew it or not, or you could see the little recording button, but it didn't ask you. Obviously something happened and you know they realized legally we better put that button there. So yeah, it improved because again, there was no choice. And I think that that's often, again, that is the heart and soul of story. We are dealing with a problem we can't avoid. How do we deal with it? And I think that that's- But I think that's where the choice comes, right? This is what Viktor Frankl talks about. He says that between uh, what happens to us and how we react to it, there is a space. And in that little space is where our decision exactly. lies. It, that little space is where our freedom lies. And in that little space is- where we choose the story through which we decide to perceive the external event and that choice of the story we attach to it determines our actions. The only thing I would say, the only place that I would take exception with that is the notion, the 100% notion that we choose because we don't. Because so much of just even in the landscape that we're looking and what we would pick is relegated by what our past experiences taught us, what we feel is safe, what our brain gives to us as an option, or sometimes even not an option. Sometimes it's just, that's what we're gonna do because we don't think that we have an option. It's not like, I think one of the biggest problems we have is thinking that everything is intentional. We stop and as, as again, as I said, I love Brene Brown, but it's just that notion of the story that we tell ourselves is if we have sat down and decided it and we don't. It comes from what our past has, has brought in, has, has, you know, has recorded as this is 
permanent. This is the way the world is. These are the choices that you've got. And then we can go forward. But it isn't like that level playing field that we were told. You know, I mean, and to me, that's the problem with the quants and that's the problem with data and that's the problem with we can just look at it and it can be we'll do the you know the 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 the, the pro and the con column and then logically we're going to figure it out and everybody's going to come to the same thing i mean it's like that that guy that uh that the neuroscientist um antonio damasio writes about you know who um who, who you know who had the he had a brain tumor and they removed it it was benign and after that his life was just falling apart. He lost his job, he lost his family, he lost all his money to, to, to con artists. He was living at home with his parents. His parents his parents called Damasio in because the government had said, like, we're cutting off your disability checks. You know, like, what are you, a malingerer? And so Damasio ran a long battery of tests and what he discovered was that Elliot, was the name of the guy, Elliot had lost the ability to feel and process emotion. And the key thing is thinking about this in terms of data, he still tested in the 97th percentile in intelligence. He could enumerate every possible solution to any problem you could toss at him. He just couldn't pick one <laughs> because what allows us to pick one is our emotion and where emotion comes from is what our past experiences taught us. Emotion is what telegraphs that meaning, right? Like blue pen or black pen, if I'm gonna, you know, if I'm gonna redo my file folders again today. I mean, he used to go, he said, like he'd go from restaurant to restaurant, you know, at lunch looking at menus, but he never went in because he didn't know what he felt like eating. It all comes back to how you feel. I mean, the key thing here is emotion isn't the monkey wrench in the system. Emotion is the system. And that's how we make the choices, not necessarily consciously, not like it's that level playing field. We do not have a level playing field. We never had a level playing field. It doesn't work that way. What we have when we make a choice is, is what's left of all of, the, all of the experiences that we've had that our brain, limbic system, thought was important enough that we needed to remember it because that might help us in the future. That might keep us safe in the future. And that's what we use, not consciously, but that's what our brain uses to help us decide what the hell to do when life has thrown us a problem and we really, you know, aren't quite sure what to do. So, so you think you, you kind of pushed forward the opinion that, that maybe we don't have a choice. Uh, now, this is one area where we would disagree because I come from sort of like the uh, ethical stoic philosophy background. Uh, or maybe even Buddhist slash Zen Buddhist background, which tells me the story that we do have the choice to choose our emotions. And I grant you it's super hard. It may be too hard for most of us. And yet there's those people who inspire me that they have managed to do it. People like Viktor Frankl, people like Epictetus, people like Epicurus and Socrates and so on. Can I say one thing though? Just one thing. Sure. I think every person you've mentioned is male. We see the world from a male point of view. So I'm really sorry, but I absolutely cannot go there with you because- Thank you for that. Thank you. Men are terrified of emotion. And they're really taught that if you want to be strong, stoic. I cannot deal. Stoicism, how horrible is that? You're going to hide inside everything you feel and just seem, I don't mean you, obviously. I don't mean you. But that's not stoic, stoicism, by the way. That's only the, the misperception of stoicism today. And yeah. there are many female examples of stoicism. 
I'm sure that there, and, I, and I'm curious to know what it is today, so I want you to tell me that, but just, I'm sure that there is, you will always find women who are doing the same thing as men because on that level, going to be an honorary man, because that is what we have been presented from time immemorial as this is what it is to be human. It's like, for instance, I'll give you a really silly, for instance, if you notice, and I, I've been watching this for a very long time, if you look at the cartoons in the New Yorker, right? If you look at the cartoons in the New Yorker, and who doesn't go through and read all those cartoons, I mean, because they're usually pretty funny, you'll find that almost all of them, when it could be either gender, right? When it doesn't have to be male or female, it's um, and whether we're talking about horses, dogs, people, it's going to be two men. And the reason is because if you see two men doing something, you think, oh, that's how people are. I always think if they flipped it, made it to women, they'd go, oh, what are you telling me about women? Because women are seen as a subset. Men are seen as that's humans and the women universal. are. Yes, some... and we have to blame my favorite guy, Plato, who oh, calls that Plato to us. Idiot. Plato yeah. was idiot. I, mean, I grant you 100% that point, and it's a very good point, uh, and I'm very grateful you're bringing it because that's a very important point. Here's the point, though. It's not just a point. It's everything that's come from that male point of view. Is it's That's why I say misogyny is the last acceptable bias, because it is so deeply baked in that people literally don't even see it like at all. And it's not just a point. And now, okay, well, here's what Plato said, or Aristotle, or Viktor Frankl, or whatever. It's everything that they're saying is based on something that, that, that says the male point of view, the male gender, which is a, again, social construct, not anything that is biological, but you know, the male gender, as it's defined, is the arbiter of all. And it goes into everything. And in my opinion, on some level, it I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> I'm just so tired of it because it doesn't, not only because of the way it looks at women, and it makes me deeply, deeply angry, but also because I don't think it's true. I think, again, that's why what, what, what the cornerstone of Western civilizations where I started with, which was Plato's like reason versus emotion is biologically wrong. We don't make decisions based on this, this notion of reason that is, that is false, that is made up, that has nothing to do with how humans process, could process, should process anything. And, and bastardizing and saying that emotion is something you know, to be suspect and that we got to you know, keep it down. It's, it's, it's just, it's, that's the myth. Biology. I agree. I agree completely oh. with, with what you just said, that it's not either or, but it's both. And by the way, stoicism is not a denial of emotion as the but, modern bastardized interpretation of the term has come to be. Being stoic doesn't mean to be emotionless. The, the core of the philosophy of stoicism is to learn to differentiate between, quote, the things that we are under our control and the things that are outside of our control and to start accepting the things that are outside of our control to stop wasting our time on those things and instead to focus on the only thing that the stoics say we control which is our own minds and our own choices i mean i would agree with you i mean that's that's right that's the serenity prayer right i mean that's, exactly that's yes a, that's the modern embodiment yes but here's the thing 
not a bad idea, although I think it can be hard to figure out what you can and can't control, but the notion that that came back to, that we can control our emotions, that's just not true. I mean, depending on what you mean by control one's emotion, I mean, people tend to hear that as, they'll go, don't be emotional, you know, calm down. And I always wanna go, dude, you do know calm is an emotion, don't you? Because we are always feeling emotion. Again, and yeah, just to be really clear, it's both and, you know, reason and, uh, and emotion, but emotion's the decider. Emotion is always the decider. As I was just saying with Elliot, if we couldn't feel and process emotion, you couldn't make a single rational, logical decision because emotion is what, is what telegraphs meaning. I mean, it's not some arbitrary, you know, like mold, it's just gonna get on it and just the goal is to subvert logic. It isn't. It lets us know what things mean to us, which is why we could never have that ones and zeros, you know, way of looking at things because things are always going to mean different things to different people based on their past. Nothing's ever, would you want a world where everything meant the same thing to, you know, to, to everybody? It would be awful. We'd have nothing. It would be stasis. But it would be nice to have, I'm sorry, last thing I'll say, I promise, it would be nice to have some sort of ethical imperative. I, I agree with you. I do think, I, I think we're here. I mean, I'm a total atheist, complete and total atheist, can't even go to the word spiritual. But I think we're all here to help other people, you know, to try to make it to, to, to I just, if you're not trying to make it better, what's the point? But you see, that's kind of the conversation that kind of been at the crux of the existence of all my work for the last 12 years. Uh, and that's to bring the story of ethics within the context of technology. Because my whole thesis for the last 12 years or so has been that technology is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. And you can have the best possible technology, but if you put it, which is a, how we do things, but if we screw up the why, you're going to end up doing more damage than good. And the why comes from your story. The why comes from your ethics. That's my story of choice. And, and now I'm just struggling to see if there could be a story that could potentially be the solution that we're looking for because i agree with you we're i think right now in the title of your book which is a must read for all everyone i think uh is story or die i think we are as a civilization right now at that crossroad story or die literally and you know i, I kind of came up with, with this conclusion about five years ago then when i saw your book i was like how freaking perfect this is and Basically, if we use the old story, I believe, which has brought us thus far, we are going to fall apart as a civilization. It, it may be even the extinction of the human race. It may be even the extinction of all life on our, on our planet. That's how bad it could be. However, I think, and while granting that story is both the poison and the cure, if we are able to come up with the good cure, the appropriate story that unites us as a civilization and makes us, helps us see that cooperation is the, the path towards and what, what makes people cooperate is stories, basically, as we know. So if we can come up with a new powerful enough story that's kind of beyond capitalism and communism and fascism and in a new way, and, and the problem is, as you pointed well before that, you know, it cannot be a story written by a single sex. 
It cannot be written by a story written by a single nation. It cannot be a story written probably by a single species because we're going to have artificial intelligence, transhumans, we're going to probably have alien intelligences, we're going to have animal uplift, we're going to have all these new consciousnesses up out there. So that's the problem. That's what makes that story so hard. That's why I'm struggling so much with that story. And that's why one of, back to your sort of masculine point, uh, which you brought so appropriately previously in our conversation, I, I have a chapter in part three in a book, which is called The Danger of a Single Story. And, and how the story that we've had so far, the only story that humanity has had so far is history meaning his story. And so until we have her story, we only have a slice of it. But her story is not enough. We need their story, meaning even the story outside of our species, because our current human story tells us that we're at the top of the pyramid and that we have a blank check to do whatever the heck we want with all life on our planet. And that's why we kill 72 billion animals on our planet annually and 1.3 trillion aquatic organisms. It all comes from our story, which justifies this genocide of epic proportions. And it makes it that it's okay because whether it's God who creates the world as our garden, that's to say ours for the taking, or we evolutionarily transcended our starting Ape, ape level of intelligence and now developed into these super uh, intelligences on the way to becoming gods, which is basically the transhumanist story, right? And so, and I think none of those actually serves that function that I'm trying to find. So do you disagree with me that this is what we need and, and, and that maybe this could be potentially the solution? Do you think that we don't... Uh, that 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 story is not and and my claim is this our story determines our future so if we want it because right now the story that we have is taking us to to a suicidal future to towards a self destruction towards a collapse of a kind whether it's nuclear destruction or climate change or pandemics which are by the way self caused humanity causes the pandemics right so all of those are kind of the same story over and over again, which is to say humanity's technological power far surpassing our ability to control it and put it to good use in a non-destructive, non-suicidal manner. And so I say if we have a new story that gives us, that informs us and guides us and inspires us to be better, that's our only chance. Now, I may be wrong. This is a thesis. It's an arrogant thesis. It's, it's out there. So what do you think? Well, two things. One, I think, could there be a story that would bring everybody together? I don't, I'm not quite sure what this has to do with technology, but let's just stick with that for one second. I think as I was thinking about it, as you were saying, and again, it's got to come down to one simple, elegant thing. And it's got to be something that brings people together as opposed to is there to, you know, to, to kind of preach to the choir, right? One side, like if you saw that, that uh, the don't look up, I don't know if you saw the Netflix thing, don't look up about that. I haven't seen it yet, no. 
yeah, it's uh, it's very one-sided. I'm my side for sure, but still, it was like, okay, this is like just too much, and you're only going to make other people, the people who you don't like, you're just going to piss them off even more than they're already pissed off. So what's the point? You would want something that brought everybody together, and I think the only way to do that, if there was going to be a story to do that, it would be sort of what I said a second ago, which is to postulate something that would crush everybody and that everybody meaning you know again i don't mean everybody in the world because you can have a story but representatives of and i don't mean like of governments but of each of these ideologies that are pulling us apart that it would have representatives of each that would have to come together in order to solve whatever that one big existential problem is but it's got to be one thing stories one problem that grows escalates and complicates and the, the biggest problem that you have with what with what with this you know really great goal is that there, there's this piece and that piece and that piece and then this over here and that over here and that piece and it's like okay but let's, let's, i can't even hold it all in my head let alone that's know. why it's so hard but is it impossible but the, i don't think it is i think if you came up with one thing whether it's any one of those things or something some black swan that we haven't even like you know thought of yet that's going to swoop in and get us maybe a literal black swan from outer space but i mean what would that be and how would it bring us together not to vilify each other but to take whatever the humanity that's in each of these because like that's to have space for all those mutually inconclusive maybe yes. even somewhat incompatible stories but Please. it has to create the framework within which they peacefully coexist. It's like, look at it this way. The story of the World Cup in soccer puts together countries from all over the world which hate each other, which don't agree on anything, probably, which uh, have all kinds of mutually incompatible goals. But to participate in the World Cup, they have to embrace the story of the rules of the game. And the game is able to channel the, the, the violence and the, well, the conflict of these mutually uh, exclusive uh, goal-oriented agents in a way in which the system functions in peace and creates the peaceful coexistence of all the participants. So in a way such that even though in the end Brazil is very unhappy that Germany won the cup, uh, and so are most other people who didn't get to win in the end, they're all better off for the game was played together. And it keeps happening every four years. Why? Because we all have agreed on the story about the rules of the game. Absolutely true. And so if we can find a story that sets and regulates the rules, and, and it has to be a totally new story in that sense that, you know, you, you're talking about the problem with governments. Yes, because we have had the story of the, of the national governments right now, but now we have a global story problem, which is like climate change and all of our story, uh, all of our problems that our stories have to solve are global. They cannot be solved at the national level. So you need a superseding new story that goes above the governments to provide a global solution, maybe even destroy governments as we know them. That's why it has to be revolutionary in that sense. But there has to be a there has to be something happening that 
again, a problem that they that people can't avoid. That is pan-human, world. But there will be something happening. We live in the, in a world where the current pandemic would be a piece of cake in the next 10 or 20 years, because when you have technological change and rupture, future shock, as Alvin Toffler said, uh, re revolutionary change does not happen without friction. Well, exactly, but that's People the will die on massive scale one way or another. The only question is, is it going to be towards something better or not? And is it going to be people dying because of some climate thing or some disaster or people killing each other because of the climate thing? Sure, and, and or it could be an AI giga war. Look at it this way. In the Enlightenment or slash the Renaissance, the life expectancy dropped down by almost 10 years to 33, especially in Italy. And men above 18 were an extinct species almost because all of them went to war and all of them died. And, and, and so in that period, which we call the Renaissance, which was this kind of very artistic and sort of revolutionary period in so many ways, it was a most brutal and violent war period of, of all against all. As Niccolo Machiavelli said, it was a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of a world, right? And that's, but that also gave birth to all this art and these incredible accomplishment and Leonardo and all that stuff. And he was, of course, hired by the princes to create all kinds of military war machines together with his art. And so what I'm saying is that if we can, but you had this story about the Renaissance, you had this story about the Enlightenment, you had this story about science, and then eventually came the story of the Industrial Revolution and the story of capitalism. And then you had the novel as an idea which literally invented human rights and, and so on and so on. And all these things came together and brought us where we are today. And that was kind of measurable progress, right, in so many ways. And even though we still have a long way to go. And so I'm just saying there's got to be a way, there's got to be a story we can come up with, a new set of rules that inspires and informs and motivates people to take the next step without self-destruction. I think, I mean, yeah, like I said, I think that you would need to think of one unavoidable problem that is everybody's facing at the same time and that there's something they can do something about as opposed to with this where you can get you know vaccinated or not and I actually think I do think we're at game over I do I, I don't think there's any way considering how unsustainable what we've done is you know how how much it's caught like capitalism we've got to grow it's got to grow it's got to grow I think we're at a place where I can't imagine how considering as, I, as I'm fond of saying, we're wired to live in a world that we don't live in anymore. There's so many different hierarchies in everything, whether it's just city government or, or, or you know, or, or even city government, state government, little, you know, county government. Everybody's fighting everybody else. I don't know how you, unless there's something that everybody has to look at at that moment or they will die or they will lose everything. I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that. And even with that, I think we've made a world that's, it's kind of terrifying. I was thinking the other day about, and not to romanticize in any way, shape or form, but just like, imagine if we actually had to go and get our own food. Like not, I don't mean to the market, <laughs> like we could go to the market. I mean, like we had to grow it or we had to go hunting and we had to find water and just the thrill of that on one level and the getting that kind of skill and the physicality 
of that. We've lost that so much. I mean, I have a I have a, a two year old granddaughter who I was watching uh, on the on yesterday. Was it yesterday? Oh God, no, day before on Saturday. And she like she loves soccer. Like she's got this soccer ball. And when this field, and my friend we were there and we we're looking, and he goes, you know, she just loves the physicality of everything. And I'm watching her thinking. I can't think of anybody I've seen in ever, you know, just a child feeling just being physically in her body just for the joy of it on that level. We've moved away from that. We've moved so far away from anything that we were wired or we evolved for. I mean, I remember saying to somebody the other day, like, I live in Los Angeles, right? What, 8 million or however many people there are. I say, what would happen if you woke up tomorrow morning and you turned on the tap and no water came out? And that was everybody. We'd all be dead in three days. How'd we get water? <laughs> so people go, we'll go to the market and get some. It's like, yeah, no, you're missing my point. We've created a world that is not sustainable. So I don't know what that answer is on that level. I mean, I do think we're, we've got a front row on the seat of destruction and the eve of destruction and something's gonna happen. But I think what you're saying is a really good idea. And I think, again, I know I keep saying it, but if you, if you could come up with, or the notion of both what that thing is that we, who's ever left, or even all of us now in figuring it out, but that would bring in and have the need for what each group does and brings us together, but still allows for that sort of conflict because there is a lot of, you know, that's not gonna go away. I mean, it's not gonna be kumbaya. You don't want kumbaya, kumbaya is boring. No, no, conflict is here to stay, but but democracy has done a decent job of channeling that just like the rules of soccer for the yeah. last two or 300 years. The thing is that now it has to evolve to the next step. It yeah. has to change because the, the, the current democracies are not up to task to the new challenges of the 21st century. And, and so, but democracy is a story. It's a story that was born in Athens and it lived very shortly there, by the way, uh, and, and then it died violent death, uh, and, and it was dead for for a long period of time, uh, and then it was broadly revived by the Romans, and then it died there for centuries again, and then it was dead for a thousand years, uh, until you know the the revolutions in the 17th and 18th century, and so on. So the, the French, the American Revolution, all those revolutions which started bringing out that kind of new story about the, the fact that the world can be organized in a new way rather than feudalism with a king, you had democracy and, and all the... Well, and democracy was still white men, <laughs> men, white men, landed sure, sure, but the story of the circle is expanding, right? So we had women, we had different races, and, and that's why I say that the future story cannot be written by one sex, gender, race, even species, But that and that's what makes it so hard. I would say that women should be first up to the mic at that point. I think it's time to look at something very different, really different, because what we've had, the reason we're at game over is because men have been in charge, in my opinion. I'm not saying, <laughs> I, I think that's why we are, you know, where we are, because anybody who has, what do they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I mean, when women have been put down as much as they have for the whole gender thing, I would like to see it flipped a little bit and to see what that would actually be like. I, 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 again, like I said, I think it's time for women to have the mic. And I think that you, though you need to think of something, come up with something 
that, that would unite us all. Because the other thing that we do, sort of last thing on that level, it makes me think of, when you think of the, here in the Second Amendment, right? And you know the right to bear arms and forgetting the whole thing of militia and what it really meant and what it's taken to mean, imagine these guys back there and they're going right to bear, even if they meant what the right now says they do. You were talking about guns that had one bullet. <laughs> They were talking about guns that nobody had. Do you think if they were alive right now, they'd go, oh yeah, AK-47, go for it. Oh yeah, I mean, they'd go, what are you, insane? How can you, the point is, we tend to pull forward what we want to pull forward and then have it, have it take hold and keep people down even when things change in such a big way, like with the AK-47, et cetera. We, you're right, we do need new stories. We, we can't, the, in other words, the old ones can't, can't expand to fit the reality that we're in now. And I think no, that's what- they, They're obsolete. The, our equipment for living, as Kenneth Burke called story, is, is obsolete. And that's why we either story, restory, rewrite that story, or we die. Right, but I think what you're saying is it's not our story equipment, it's the story that we're telling ourselves right now. Yeah, yeah. The story that we've locked ourselves into is, is killing us. You're right. 100%. Sure. 100%. And, and it's it's come us, it's it's brought us that far from the dark ages and it's not gotten us far enough and we've oppressed many genders and and races etc. But it, it's it's done some good and some bad terrible in on both ends probably but it's got it's got it's it's taken us out from the you know caves but it's it's no longer useful. Um so Anyway, this is my struggle with my book and my thesis, and that's why it's going to take a long time, probably, if not a lifetime, Who, whoever knows what's going to happen. The first two-thirds of the book are easy. The, the last third where that... So the first part is called Story. That, I got that covered. The second part is called Our Story. I got that part covered too. I've got very detailed research and outlines and everything. And the last part is the new story, and that's the part... I'm struggling with tremendously. So these interviews, these conversations are are to spur kind of both my imagination and also the our audience and, and maybe even you and, and anyone else because it's not me who has to come up with that story, but someone will. It's the greatest leadership opportunity in the history of our civilization. And the people who come up with that story would change the world. Yeah, I, I think I think, and I think that the key is not to go for low hanging fruit, which is which is what gets us in trouble all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree with you. Well, Lisa Cron, where can people find more about you and your work? Um, I I have a website called wiredforstory.com. I am there. You can Google me. There's there's lots of interviews. Um, I've written three books: Wired for Story, Story Genius, and Story or Die, and they are available where everywhere where books are available. So I'm, I'm easy to, I'm totally Googleable, very easy to find. And I totally recommend both of those books as well as your TEDx uh, video, which is only about, I think, 17 minutes. Yeah, I think 18 uh, like the limit they can be, so. Yeah. Right, right. So Lisa, I always give the last word to my guests. So if we, we had kind of this very kind of interesting discussion in the beginning and then things started heating up a little bit and and that's where i kind of get the most out of my conversations in the sort of the socratic park the dialectic park of part of the of the conversation but if you were to 
put the final word on our talk today, on our conversation, on our interview, what's the message that you want us to finish with today? I think the message is that, as I said before, emotion isn't the monkey wrench in the system. Emotion is the system. It's how we make sense of everything. It's how we make every decision that we ever make. Logic and emotion are not rock'em sock'em robots. They're not binary. It's both and, but at the end of the day, emotion is the decider because emotion is what telegraphs meaning. And in every story, here's the thing, going to what you were saying all the way through, which is stories can lead us to do great things and they can lead us to do really horrendous things. And here's the thing, because we're wired for story, you're affected by stories every minute of every day, whether you know it or not. You may maybe heard that Coleridge quote, you know, to get lost in a story demands a willing suspension of disbelief. Could not be less true. Biologically, as we talked about earlier, when you're pulled into a story, biologically, your body puts a timeout on reality and you are there. And stories change us. They change us in ways that we do not realize we are being changed. People talk about stories, they'll go, it's mindless entertainment. And it's Never, it's always affecting us. I like to redefine things. So here's how I think of mindless entertainment. Stories come into our gut. We feel the meaning, we feel what's going on. Literally, same areas of our brain light up as are lighting up when, you know, if we were doing what that character's doing. It comes in through our gut. It changes how we feel things. And it looks at our eyes and now we see the world differently. But often it doesn't go through that thinking part of our brain. <laughs> so when you feel yourself really pulled into a story, really, especially a story where there's something that they want of you, where it's really meant there for a call to action. If you come out the other end and find yourself doing something you never would have done before, just take one second to think about it. And go, that's where the thinking part comes in. But do I really believe this? Do I really want this? Is this what I want? And if the answer is yes, and you feel yes, go for it. But question it, because again, do not doubt it. You are affected by stories every minute of every day, whether you know it or not. So question the story. When you come out at the other end, whatever feeling you've got, especially, I mean, if it's a movie or a book, it's affecting you that way too. You want to question it, but especially if it's something that's coming from a politician or a televangelist or a marketer, really stop and take that big breath and go, do I believe this? Because like I said, it's affecting us whether we know it or not. And most of the time, we don't know. Lisa Cron, it's been a fascinating conversation with you. I, as you can see, I'm, I haven't gotten my story right quite yet. I'm actually not even close to it perhaps, but, but hopefully we're getting somewhere with these conversations. And, and anyway, I know that I have learned tremendously a lot from both of your books and from your TEDx talk. And I really appreciate your time of being with us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. I love to talk story and you were fun to talk story too. Thank you.